Hey, everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Back by popular demand is my guest, Dr. Peter Rogers, for his regular second Sunday of the month show called Nutrition Insights with Dr. Peter Rogers. Please welcome him back to the show. How have you been? Good. What are you going to talk about this month? Well, this talk is kind of um, a hodgepodge, nutrition highlights, and then about communications. I had to give some lectures recently on communications and on uh, how to give a PowerPoint presentation and whatnot. And I started reading in that area, and I just kept going in all kinds of different directions. So I sort of wanted to put a bunch of stuff into one talk, because otherwise it'll never get in a talk. And uh, so it's, but it's going to be a little bit all over the place. And, you know, we'll see if, if it seems like it's fun, we'll just keep going with it. If not, you know, maybe I'll dial back on it. Where were you giving this lecture? Well, I have to give a lot of different lectures. I, I give a lot of lectures to doctors that are like real experienced, 30, 40, 50 years of experience. And in those lectures, I go through a lot of, you know, complex molecular biology, biochemistry and all that, pathophysiology, neuroradiology. And then I also give lectures to residents. And the residents, I kind of like showing them how to give a good presentation. And I kind of also emphasize ideas of don't just try to get by and do a sort of a, a weasel job. I mean, don't get me wrong. You have to play by the rules and, you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans do in, in that context, especially when you're young. You know, you want to get promoted. You want to keep advancing. So you can't be too. But I think as you get older, and more senior, it's like if you want to be a good presenter, you have to go out on a limb. You have to take chances. You have to be willing to admit mistakes. You got to do things that make your presentation better. Otherwise, it's going to be generic stuff. Have you ever done any Toastmasters or training? Uh, no, I would. I, I'd be happy to do that. But, you know, I'm a very obsessive compulsive person. I have read and studied so much about this. It's not even funny. And I think I'm pretty objective and fair in the sense that, you know, I know when I screwed up. And I try to do it differently. You know, I, I can I can take a mistake. What I mean by that is some people, they freak out if they make a mistake and they can't admit it and they're obsessed. Whereas I'm like, man, I screwed up. That was, you know, but now I'll do better. So. Well, they you know. say that public speaking is like the number one fear of people. Right. But I think that's because most people are afraid they don't have anything to say. I got too much to say. I always have to, to cut it back. You know, like this slide, I got 157 slides. I could have easily had over 300, you know, so. Oh my gosh. Well, why don't you write a book? Well, as a matter of fact, I did. I was actually going to show the book today. Here it is. Um, I wrote this book. Oh, crap. Can you see it? Uh, Poor Man's Way to Fight Cancer. And I got a picture. I don't know if I can get into focus here. Of my two wrestling coaches, the uh, Schultz brothers, uh, Mark and Dave Schultz. Because I'll, I'll have a picture of them in the talk. I got something different for both of them. You know, maybe I'll show it when, I, when, I have, when we're getting the talk. But I, I learned a lot more. From, I learned more from those guys than any of my Stanford professors. They both taught me a way to view the world. You know, I had to very much get my game up, so to speak, to be able to do well academically at Stanford. I was not recruited as a scholar. I was recruited as an athlete. Wow, that's amazing. Well, would you like to start your presentation? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Can you see the slide? Not yet. No. Okay. Let me uh, make sure you have it up open on your desktop. I have it open on my desktop. So I think what I need to do, I got to share screen. Yes. Share desktop. Yeah, okay. Once I click. There the you go. Okay. All right. So 
for this talk today, I want to start out with the Ten Commandments of Veganism. All right, here's a lovely painting of uh, Moses looking at the Ten Commandments. This was painted by Arnold Freiberg. And here we go. Social thinking does not work. When it comes to optimizing health, your nutritional thinking should be more like religion, biblical, like the Ten Commandments. Most of us were fat and sick because of eating the wrong food and rubbing toxins on oneself. And you want it to be your fault. A lot of people say, oh, no, it's not my fault. You want your problem to be your fault because that means you could fix it. Okay. Ten commandments of nutrition are written in stone. Starch is the true God of food. Thou shalt put no other foods before starch. Starches include potatoes, sweet potatoes, rice, beans, oatmeal, quinoa, millet, carrots. Eat starch to satisfy hunger and provide energy. It's the best way to satisfy hunger. Starch is the way. Starch is the entree. Starch should provide about 50 to 90% of your calories. There's a little bit of variety in, in what percentage you can carry. Some people like a little more, some a little less, and, and it can work depending on the individual for that one. Okay, commandment number two, thine brain is a thermostat. The hypothalamic hunger center forces you to eat exactly the amount of food that you do. Hunger is set by the almighty hunger drive, and it will crush any willpower attempts to change. Eat less and exercise more is the mantra of chumps. It does not work. Thine hunger center is a thermostat, and it can only be reset by changing what you eat. Thou dost not need to count calories. Eat the right foods, and thy brain will correctly reprogram itself. That's an important one. You can't just do it on eat more and exercise less. Okay, commandment number three. Vegetables and fruits are the best source of nutrients. For every meal, thou must ask thyself three questions. What starch, what fruit, what vegetable? Number four, plants provide what you need to spread your seed. Plant foods optimize your sex appeal. With better blood flow to the skin, one gets a glow of vitality. With all that nitric oxide, potassium, and magnesium, they're all vasodilators. They're what you want. They're the opposite of sodium. You get better blood flow. And you also get better blood flow to all your organ systems. Everything functions better. Number five, it's not a diet. It's a way of life. Number six, thou shalt not eat meat. Meat makes you fat, diabetic, and hypertensive. Milk is liquid meat. Cheese is meat jello. When you eat cheese, you look like the animal it came from. Pizza looks the same on your plate as it does in your arteries. It looks like atherosclerotic plaques. They look like a cheese pizza. Meat causes leaky gut, postprandial lipotoxemia, xenocyelitis, TMAO, inflammation, kidney hyperfiltration, autoimmune disease, increased risk of cancer. It has no fiber and is associated with constipation, abdominal pressure syndrome, iron overload, estrogen overload, increased ILGF, methionine, leucine, mTOR, and cancer. I mean, how could it be worse than that? Number seven, thou shalt not eat oils. Oils are liquid fat and they make thou fat. All processed oils are bad, including olive oil. Okay. Um, oils cause blood sludge, which is atherogenic. Oils cause decreased arterial vasodilation. They cause endothelial dysfunction, meaning your arteries have difficulty opening up after ingesting oils. Oils cause lipid peroxidation, which damages the hypothalamus and hippocampal neurons and pancreatic beta cells. That's especially from the research of Tetsumori Yamashima, the Japanese neuroscientist. 
Oils are tumor promoters. If thou must go to a restaurant, then choose the buffet and eat your salad without dressing. Skip the dressing and you will look better undressed. Salad dressing is for wussies. Okay. Number eight, thou shalt not commit adultery with junk food and fast food. Number nine, thou shalt not bear false witness against the vegan diet. There are two kingdoms of food. The, the vegan kingdom is the land of healthy aging, like the Tarahumara, Okinawa, Yanomamo, rural Kenya, Papua New Guinea, and Loma Linda. The meat and junk food kingdom is the land of the fat and the sick, like the Pima, most Americans, and other eaters of the sad diet. You may ask, what about fat vegans? They have fallen into temptations of oils and sweets, the siren song of philosophic vegetarians. Do not be fooled by these false prophets. The path to optimal body weight is orthodox veganism. Low sodium, low fat, whole food, 100% organic, 100% plant-based with no oil, no caffeine, no alcohol, no sweets, no refined flour. Okay, when the rest of your age cohort is fat, diabetic, woodless, hooked on hypertension pills and worried about open heart surgery, You'll be waking up with wood, and the only question will be whether to bop the bishop or bang the betty. Starch hath saved you. Thou shalt not covet, covet thy neighbor's plate of GMO-fed, herbicide-sprayed, hormonally hypertrophied, antibiotic-assaulted, hexane-extracted, MSG-marinated, trans-fat-fried frankenfood. Okay, does that sound like too much effort? Get thee an attitude of gratitude. Heal your objections to veganism, and it may heal you. Hath not the Lord provided you safe passage through the Red Sea that drowneth the many? The low-fat, no-sodium, low-sodium vegan diet is the only path that prevents most of the chronic diseases. And so here's Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no disease because the vegan diet is by my side. And this is the painting Crossing of the Red Sea by Arnold Freiberg. Okay, so... That was the deal about, you know, if you, if you have an alcoholic, you tell them no alcohol. You can't get drunk on the weekends. You have to stop drinking alcohol. Same, same thing with cigarettes. You don't smoke on the weekends. You stop smoking. And meat is another one of these poisons to our health. So if you want to optimize your health, you got to stop it. And once you're sick in some way, then you have to be extra careful because you want to not just keep things under control. You want to reverse a problem. Okay. Um, so, you know, we call this the holy grail of health. These are other things one can do to be healthy. And I also showed this because the idea of, you know, going 100% on these things, and it reminds me of only Sir uh, Galahad could find the Holy Grail because he was the one who made himself worthy. Even though Lancelot was the better knight, Lancelot was fooling around with, you know, Guinevere and another lady. So he was felt unworthy to find the Holy Grail. So that's what I'm sort of saying is don't go half-ass on this. Be 100% and, you know, you'll be best likely to get your success. All right. Um, I'm briefly going to mention I recently published a book. It's called The Poor Man's Way to Fight Cancer. Basically, it's all the things you can do that don't cost you any money that could potentially help you a lot. Um, this is a picture of my two wrestling coaches when I was a wrestler at Stanford University. This is Dave Schultz and Mark Schultz. They're both national champion, world and Olympic champions. And I learned something real valuable from them. Uh, I think I got more pictures of them. Oh, actually, I only got one picture because I'm not showing all the pictures. I'm just showing this cover here. He was a fat dyslexic guy when he was in grade school and they make fun of him, you know, hey, you fat, stupid dummy and stuff like that. But he was good at wrestling and he mastered the technique. He learned every little thing you can learn. That's what I call incrementalism to really learn your field and everything sort of related to it. And all that knowledge, each thing individually might be minuscule, but in aggregate, they're a big, powerful advantage. And what I learned from him, Mark Schultz was 
an intense focus. The only thing he cared about in the whole world was wrestling. He even said to me one time, the only thing I own in this whole world is a motorcycle and it's a piece of crap, but I don't care because, you know, I want to be a world and Olympic champion. And what I'm saying is you intensely focus on what you're trying to achieve. And that intensity of focus on one thing, it magnifies your ability. I've seen that lots of times. The unique thing about this book is I got tons of pictures, 110 illustrations, almost all of them in color. And it's just stuff like this, you know, basically normal cell, it's a worker. Normal cells, they got tons of jobs to do. Let's say you're a liver cell. You have to maintain blood glucose levels, especially during fasting. You're the metabolic workhorse that gets all the nutrients coming from the gut after a person eats. You got to make the bile. You got to detoxify everything. The liver is liver cells go through tons of ATP. Cancer cells different. Cancer cell typically has been post-injury, let's say hypoxia, Warburg effect, transformation to become like an anaerobic bacteria. A cancer cell just wants to grow. It wants to replicate. It basically says, take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. I want to go find myself a good apartment. And that means to metastasize other locations. So the point is a cancer cell doesn't care that much about ATP. It cares about making a copy of itself. A cell has to duplicate itself, make a copy of everything inside of it before it can replicate, divide into two cells, like a bacteria. Bacteria just want to replicate. That's a bacteria's goal in life. Same thing with a cancer cell. And the relevance is once you understand that's what a cancer cell has to do, then you can fight back. You could stop giving the cancer cell what it needs. It needs tons of iron. It has more transferrin receptors. That's the transport protein for iron. So restrict your dietary iron, okay? Potentially even donate blood. Get your serum ferritin down to 25 to 80, okay? Um, decrease your dietary fat. It needs tons of fat to make all its uh, plasma membrane lipids and whatnot. Okay. Uh, what else could you do? Avoid things that, you know, the tumor microenvironment that favors its growth is acidotic and hypoxic. So avoid things that cause acidosis, sodium chloride, the chloride displaces bicarbonate in the blood, low-grade metabolic acidosis. That's one example. Okay. Meat has a lot more acidic type amino acids. Okay. The, okay. What else? So what are some of the other things? Avoiding the fat, you avoid activation of insulin-like growth factor receptors. These are all things you can do. The meat also has more methionine, loosening, which, and iron. They all activate mTOR, which is the cell replication pathway. So anyways, it's going to be full of stuff like that. How you get your vasodilatation, you know, from nitric oxide. By eating the greens, they get converted. The nitrates in the greens get converted to nitrate, NO2, on the bacteria on the tongue. That's why we talked about you don't want, you know, the toothpaste that blocked that or the mouthwash. Then in the stomach, full conversion, nitric oxide, absorbing your blood, systemic vasodilation, vasodilation, increased perfusion of all your tissues. So anyway, stuff like that. The book's full of all that, and it's in picture form. So hopefully it'll help you. And I got all these lectures, you know, on, on, my, on my YouTube channel. You can watch them if you want. Um, hopefully it'll help you. Okay, um, and what's kind of like the overriding big point? You want it to a large extent, live like Adam and Eve, but keep your indoor heating and plumbing. You know, be kind of simple. Simple stuff is what we're made for. You know, a lot of this modern stuff, a lot of times it comes with a catch. Okay, this is my favorite painting of Adam and Eve by Jan Bruegel, Peter Paul Rubin. All right, and now I'm going to briefly mention something else because some people have asked me about this. Did everyone used to be a vegan according to the Bible? Okay, and there is, let's see, where's the quote? So Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and earth. Okay, what else? Um, let's go to Genesis 1-29. Then God said, behold, I have given every, you every, I've given you every plant yielding seed, which is upon the face of all the earth and every tree which has fruit. It shall be food for you and to every beast of the earth and every bird of the air and every creature that crawls upon the earth. I have given every green plant for food. So according to this, everybody, including plants and animals, were supposed to be vegans in the beginning. All right. According to this, that's before the flood. After the flood, the flood had wiped out all the plants. 
So then there weren't any plants to eat, so people could eat animal foods, all right? Um, after the flood, I was told that they were supposed to return eating plant foods, but I haven't looked up where that one is, so I can't prove that. I'd have to look that up to know that, okay? Um, and God said, if thou wilt hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God and wilt give ear to his commandments, I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the low-carb paleos. For I am the Lord God who heals you. And that's Exodus chapter 15, verse 26. This is a good website if you ever want to look up Bible quotes, biblehub.org. Okay, now for something, a little bit of a hot topic. What are some of the biggest lies in veganism? Good fats, like olive oil, is not good for you, okay? I'm not going to go into all these in detail, but I'm just sharing with you some of these things because you're going to hear this all the time. MSG is okay. No, it's not. It's neurotoxin carcinogen. It's okay to drink tap water with F minus. Okay, a lot of times tap water got F minus, it's got aluminum, it's got EDCs, endocrine disrupting chemicals, especially estrogenics. You definitely want a water filter, at a minimum, a carbon filter. High fructose corn syrup is okay. No, it's not. It's associated when you drink it in a bolus form, industrialized, like in these energy drinks, a fatty liver. And the way it's purified, it'll sometimes be containing uh, mercury, which you don't want. Um, that, you know, MJ is good for you. No, it's not. I, I, I hang around, let's say, a significant amount with neurologists, okay? It is not good for you. It is not good for the brain. It can cause schizophrenic breakdowns and other problems. It can be laced with PCP, et cetera. Okay, um, a lot of foods are fortified with iron. I thought that was good when I was young. It's not. It just accelerates the rate at which you become iron overloaded. Um, a lot of these other things, like stevia is sort of a hot topic these days. People think that's such a good thing. No, it's associated with infertility. Aspartame, a sweetener, is associated with, is like an excitotoxin, neurotoxic, okay? Caffeine is not good for you. There's all this thing saying, oh, coffee's so good for you. I heard some guy, you know, claiming to be a sleep expert say, oh, that he still drinks coffee because he wants to get the antioxidants. No, you can just eat plant foods to get antioxidants. You don't need to drink coffee. It mimics the acute stress response. That's not good for you. Elevated cortisol, elevated catecholamines, Okay. Anyways, I'm going to get into some more things. Oh, one thing I thought was funny is if you look at veganism, I, you know, not by choice, it's just happening. You know, I noticed this Durian Ryder guy, he's a little crazy, but he's also real smart and he's funny. He's sort of like the bad boy of veganism, as far as I can tell, for teens and 20-somethings. And I think I'm kind of becoming the bad boy of middle-aged and older vegans because I, I criticize all these things. And that's why I joke, I got a picture of the Fonz right here. Uh, I used to really like that show when I was younger. Oh, and here, by the way, is a picture of Charlie Brown and Lucy, how, you know, she would hold a football for him to kick and he would, and she would talk him into it and he'd go for it and fall like a chump. And so what I'm saying is don't be a chump. Read about these things and you'll see, you know, sometimes you're going to see contradictory statements and then you just work towards figuring it out for yourself. But, you know, don't be a chump like Charlie Brown was over and over. All right. So here's the early part of the life cycle. These are from the beautiful paintings of Thomas Cole um, called The Voyage of Life. And this is the youth uh, painting where he's looking up at his idea of a perfect future up in the sky, utopia, palace. And you see he's got clear sailing water straight to his path. But unbeknownst to him, there's going to be a turn in the river and he's going to head towards the rapids. That's what happens to most of us as we uh, pass through our 20s and life starts to be full of challenges. So anyways, that's some of Durian Ryder's territory. And then here's where I typically run into people in middle age. Now the boat has lost its oars. It's going over the rapids and there's a lot of rocks and he's just hoping and praying he doesn't crash into the rocks. And this is where you start becoming a lot more interested in the vegan diet. And the good news, it works. At least it used to almost always work. And there's a few other things to know, of course, but um, guardian angels a little farther away. The storm clouds are coming in. 
This is middle age from the Voyage of Life paintings. Oh, another thing that's overrated. We talked about it before. We're not going to go into too much, but the reason why a lot of these psych drugs tend to not work at all or only work in the short term is because uh, synapse in the brain is typically much, much, much more complicated than people think. You'll see a single neurotransmitter and a single synaptic cleft, but quite often there's multiple simultaneous synapses interacting with multiple different neurotransmitters. And anything you change about one of them is going to cause compensatory changes in the other one, leading to net changes that you don't want. So I'm just saying, be aware of that. It's not just this simple one neurotransmitter needs to go up or down with a, like, like a dimmer switch. It is not like that. It's much more complicated. And those drugs work much less well than people think. Okay, so then here's another thing I want to talk about is I think the old view of health and veganism was simply if you just eat the right diet, low fat, low sodium, whole food, plant-based diet, everything will be fine. And here's what I'm saying. I think we are entering a new era. I actually believe we've been in this new era for some time and we're going further into it and it's really becoming a big deal. Here's what I'm saying. The new view of health is that vegan diet alone is not enough. It's not enough. I know it used to be enough, but I don't think it's enough anymore. I believe now you need to learn something about toxins because they're just too ubiquitous. They really are. It's not just because I'm interested in them. They really are. All these estrogenic chemicals, estrogen is a fat storage, uh, fat storage chemical. If you're getting estrogenics from your tap water, you're getting estrogenics from your clothing, from your detergents, from the personal care products you use, from eating a meat and oil diet, you're going to have really high estrogenics. I mean, I like I said, I know some people where every single woman in their family had to get a hysterectomy before the age of 35. That's not a healthy thing. There's a lot of heavy metals contaminating our foods these days, preservatives, excitotoxins. That's things like MSG, MFG, and aspartame mitochondrial toxins, these circa inhibitors and other ones. So what I'm saying is it used to be this relatively straightforward diagram, okay? If you go vegan, especially by 35 years of age or so, you're probably gonna avoid all these chronic disease, you'll die in uh, old age and you'll have a relatively hassle-free uh, middle age and older years. On the other hand, you go down the sad diet, you, you know, meat, oil, processed food, drug, 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 chop, 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 surgery, bye-bye money, you know, dead early, all right? But Things have gotten more complicated, okay? And what I'm saying is, you know, what are you trying to do? You're trying to stay out of health hell, okay? So I, I like this picture here by Dino De Durante. I think it's beautiful of the multiple circles of hell, you know, sort of based loosely on Dante. You know, here's Dante uh, from his Divine Comedy, okay? And there's Virgil, his guide through. And the point is all these health foods push you down further and further into the, the deeper, worse circles of hell. And the way you get out of it was, you know, our diet, that's typically how it's been, but now it's becoming more important to um, avoid toxins. And one of the big new things being talked about is this new, new APL coating. Now the, the people who invented this stuff, they're brilliant. I mean, they call it APL. So like it's appealing, it sounds good. The peel on a, on a, on a fruit or a vegetable. It also has other names that are almost the same thing, Eddie peel or organa peel. And it does have a legitimate purpose. The idea is to prevent fruits and vegetables from spoiling because a lot of stuff does spoil and a lot of money is lost from that. A lot of food is lost from that. Uh, it's currently sprayed on avocados and apples and I've heard it's on cucumbers and then there's plans to spray it on a bunch of other things, orange, limes, pineapples, you know, lots of stuff. And I don't even know for sure what other things it's on. Um, it has been approved for organic produce, but there's some things about it that I'm not thrilled about. It cannot be washed off according to the makers of it. It has been labeled as grass, meaning G-R-A-S, generally regarded as safe. Uh, but then you start looking at it more closely. There's an FDA summary sheet that says that, you know, it contains these monoglycerides, diglycerides. So 
you know, triglyceride is your typical fat. You know, the glycerol backbone, one, two, three uh, fatty acids. Well, a mono would be the glycerol backbone, one fat. A dye would be two. But the point I'm saying about is they can contain trans fat. So you take this wonderful food, fruits and vegetables, and now you're going to put a little bit of trans fats on it. That's not good. Um, then it's got these other heavy duty chemical solvents, including, you know, things like hexane. Hexane, you know, is a neurotoxin, okay? That can be on there. You know, these might only be there on there in small amounts, but that could add up. Okay, there's heavy metals that can be on there that are allowed to be on there, including lead, palladium, arsenic, okay? Uh, and there's also something called acetonitrile, okay? That's not good. These are all neurotoxic, acetonitrile, toluene, hexane, lead, okay? Um, now, I also then looked up, you know, at PubChem, some of the, the data sheets, okay? For example, uh, this right here is hexane, you know, neurotoxin associated with polyneuropathy, Numbness in the extremities, muscular weakness, blurred vision, headache, fatigue, neurotoxic effects have also been exhibited in rats. That's not good. Toluene. Okay. Central nervous system is the primary target for toluene toxicity. I've seen articles in the American Journal of Neuroradiology of, of uh, basal ganglia strokes from this stuff. Okay. You don't want this. All right. So you, again, you take this perfect food, fruits and vegetables, and then here's the one that scares me the most, acetonitrile. The other name for acetonitrile is methyl cyanide, okay? That's not a misprint. Acetonitrile is methyl cyanide. It's a chemical variant on cyanide, okay? That's not good. I don't want that on my produce. So yeah, you might preserve it a little longer, and I'm sure it's in small amounts, but I don't want any of that stuff. So anyways, I went to the customer service at Whole Foods, Jewel, grocery store, Trader Joe's, and asked them what foods it's on. At every single place, customer service guys didn't know. At the Whole Foods place, Whole Foods thing, the guy tried to look it up. He said he knew it was on their product, but he couldn't tell which ones. There was no information to make that clear to him. So he couldn't tell me. Um, I went to the produce guy in one of these grocery stores, and he couldn't tell what it was on. Some of the foods had a sticker. I saw avocados that had a sticker, but it's not clear if it's necessarily going to have a sticker on all the produce that it's on. So that's concerning. Um, and like I said, you can't smell it. You can't taste it. You can't wash it off. So that seems unfair to me that we don't know what foods it's in. And it's like, you know, playing Russian roulette with your food. And, you know, like I said, it, it, what are you going to do? You've taken fruits and vegetables, the greatest foods in the world, and they're being turned into junk food. Um, supposedly, it's also at Costco and other stores. What can we do to avoid it? You know, I don't know that well. Buy direct from a farmer at a farmer's market. There's grocery stores called the natural grocer stores. They're based out of Colorado. So they don't have many up in the Midwest. But they do have some. If you go to their their uh, website, you can check if they've got any stores near you, and you could maybe go to those. Uh, frozen food will maybe not have it, but I don't know for sure. I'd hate to give up eating fruits and vegetables, and then I would totally become a starchivore. You know, it used to be those Asians would eat uh, like 95% rice, but, you know, you certainly want more variety than that. I'm going to go on the Kempner diet, maybe. Okay, for, and for years, I used to think that Fluoride in the water, the tap water, soy in the baby formula with BPA and aluminum cans was just a way to sort of like, it was like unfair to poor people, okay, uh, to shorten their lives. But now with a peel, it's like everybody's screwed. That's what I'm trying to say. It's like that movie with um, uh, Kevin Costner, No Way Out. There's no longer a great path. If, if we all know that standard American diet is screwed, okay, but now, even if we eat fruits and vegetables, we're still screwed. What's the only path out? To only eat starch? You know, we, we'd like a little more variety than that. I like starch. Yeah, it's the best food, but we want more than that. So 
Uh, it's, it's sad. We really should be allowed to know what food it's in so we can avoid it if we want. So I joke, you know, help Mr. Wizard beam me up, Scotty, fast. How can we get out of this trap? And, um, you know, we should have a right to know what's in our food, the freedom of food. And this is a picture from the Planet of Apes movie. The Statue of Liberty is sinking into the ground and about to drown, but she's not dead yet. Maybe we can save her and still have some freedom of our food so we can choose the food to give us the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that's good for us. That's what I'm hoping. And I made a vegan prayer. I got some like religious metaphors for this talk. It's going to be about communications and they're kind of fun. And I'm just having fun with this. So please don't go crazy if, these, if you don't like it. But this is called the Holy Berry. Holy Berry, mother of starch. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Vegas. Pray for us dietary sinners now and at the hour of our dinners. And if the name of this prayer sounds like a Hollywood actress, that's entirely coincidental. Okay, next topic. I had a whole bunch of topics kind of come together for this talk rather than speaking on one thing. It was the only way to ever talk about these things um, on Chef H's show. So that's why I, they're all together. You cannot run a bad diet. So this guy right here is Jim Fix, who is a real smart guy in Mensa. He wrote this book here, The Complete Book of Running. He's got nice, you know, muscular, sexy legs. Okay. Well, anyways, he said, I'm a marathoner. I can eat whatever I want. So he's eating cheeseburgers and he had a myocardial infarction. The point being is you can't outrun a bad diet. If you plug up your coronaries, even if you normally have a lot of fitness, you're still going to have the risk of having a vulnerable plaque that's going to rupture. You'll have an MI. This is a guy named Bob Harper. He was a big celebrity, you know, personal trainer on the show. I think it was the biggest loser. And um, he had the same thing. He had a myocardial infarction, cold blue. He was defibrillated and resuscitated. So now he's slimmed down trying to be healthier. But I'm just telling you, it's another example. You cannot run a bad diet. Um, Nathan Pritikin and a whole bunch of persons who would have these similar type situations were big fitness exercisers, but ate the bad diet. And they still ended up with uh, major coronary artery disease, myocardial infarction, often fatal. So here's Alberto Salazar, you know, world-class Boston Marathon champion. He had a cold blue myocardial infarction. Luckily, he was defibrillated, brought back to life. So what I'm saying is, wouldn't it be easier to just, you know, follow the SSN-like diet, low-fat, low-sodium, vegan diet? Uh, so you avoid it. Because, you know, you have myocardial infarction. These guys all would have been dead if they weren't lucky enough to be defibrillated. And even if you survive, you might lose a lot of cardiac muscle. That's what a myocardial infarction is. Infarction means dead muscle. So why go through that? You know, a lot of myocardial infarctions, they present with sudden death. So you don't get necessarily a second chance to fix the problem. Okay. Um, and this is a guy, William Roberts, he's like the most famous cardiac pathologist in the world. And he basically said, and from his research, if you feed a high fat diet to a herbivore, they all get atherosclerosis, all of them, hundred percent humans are herbivores. So we're not meant to eat these high fat diets. So just don't do it. You know, there's nothing ambiguous about it. Don't do it. Um, okay. Atherosclerosis is a blood clot. This is from Gregory Sloop, MD atherothrombosis explains atherosclerosis. And by the way, I did a fellowship in interventional radiology, imaging guided surgery, long time ago, over like 25 years ago. And I can tell you, I've been studying atherosclerosis. The emphasis was on vascular disease and doing angioplasties and stents and all that stuff. I can tell you, this is the key way to understand atherosclerosis, the concept of atherothrombosis. Atherosclerosis is a blood clot. Once you get that, plus I look at them on CT angiograms all the time. We can't tell them apart, atherosclerotic plaque from a blood clot. Okay, once you get that, you'll be able to make sense out of everything. You have to know hemorrhagiology. You have to know atherothrombosis theory. Once you get that, all of these previous mysteries in atherosclerosis will make sense to you. You should also know about endothelial precursor cells, uh, you know, being circulating, okay? And as and that being a mechanism of getting the plaque subendothelium. Okay, now we're moving on to a new topic. 
Fatty liver, what could go wrong? Okay, with fatty liver, you've got accumulation of fat in the liver. And I just want to show you the, the venous anatomy. You've got your intestinal tract here. Here's the bowel. You eat a food. Some of your food particles that go right into the superior mesenteric vein, joins up with the portal vein, goes into the liver. And then the liver can process stuff. Let's say it's fructose. The liver will process it then. Let's say it's an estrogenic chemical. The liver will detox it or something else. Uh, blood from the spleen will then also pass through here. You got the inferior mesenteric vein coming up, okay? The spleen is a filter for the blood. It removes the old red blood cells. Okay, um, let's see. By the way, fatty liver is so common. It's over one third of the American population has fatty liver. I can tell you a lot of times I have to look at CAT scans or abdomens of the, uh, or CT scans of the abdomen. I see fatty liver tons of times. The reason for the CAT scan could be something totally irrelevant to the liver and there'll still be a fatty liver sitting right there. Uh, if, you, if you eat a standard American diet, you eat these energy drinks with all this uh, industrial high fructose corn syrup in there, you are headed towards fatty liver. Alcoholics get a lot of fatty liver too. But NAFLD is non-alcohol fatty liver disease, super, super common. Um, it'll progress to NASH, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. So steato just means fat. Hepatitis means with inflammation. So that's the worsening. It's, it's not just fat storage, now it's inflamed. Inflammation in the human body typically generates an immune response leading to laying down a collagen or fibrosis, scar tissue. And then a scarred up fibrotic liver is cirrhosis, which is you know end-stage liver failure. Uh, once the liver fails, you're going to get back pressure in the venous system into the spleen. So the spleen gets big. And when the spleen gets big, that's a problem because it starts chewing things up. It'll chew up red blood cells, leads to anemia. It'll chew up white blood cells that can lead to neutropenia. It can chew up platelets and that's called thrombocytopenia. Penia means a deficit of something. Okay. So I recently saw a patient fell, hit their head, had an intracranial bleed, and it came from their fatty liver, because the fatty liver led to cirrhosis, led to hypersplenism, and that led to consumption of other platelets, okay? We remember when we talked about diabetes, you first get accumulation of, you know, fat in your sub-Q, you sort of overwhelm your sub-Q fat, then you get accumulation in your skeletal muscles, that leads to insulin resistance, then you start getting accumulation in your liver, and that insulin resistance with fat in the skeletal muscle causes postprandial hyperglycemia, that means hyperglycemia after eating, postprandial means after eating. Okay, then when you get accumulation of fat in the liver, fatty liver, then you start getting fasting hyperglycemia because the liver loses the ability to accurately uh, regulate blood glucose. And then you start getting uh, spillover of fat accumulating in the pancreas and you start developing uh, injury to the beta cells, the ones that make insulin in the pancreas. And that'll lead to full-blown uh, type 2 diabetes that's insulin dependent. So you want to try to treat it the sooner the better so you don't lose those beta cells. But what I'm talking about, this is progressive accumulation of fat. It's a bad thing. Then these are all the complications of diabetes. All right, so here's the progression in the liver. Here's a normal, healthy, happy liver and a plant-based diet. Here is somebody accumulating fatty liver from eating way too much of this uh, unhealthy fats and high fructose corn syrup and industrial portions um, with all these artificially sweetened processed foods. Here it is progressing to steatohepatitis, NASH, non-alcohol steatohepatitis, and you're getting fibrosis. With full-blown advanced fibrosis, you get nodular contour of the liver and extensive fibrosis within the liver. That's called cirrhosis. In addition, this fibrosis can block the oxygen delivered to the liver cells. And we talked about that before, the Warburg effect. He won the Nobel Prize in 1931. He's a German biochemist. And what he noticed was human tissue culture cells will sometimes transform to cancer once they're exposed to hypoxia, meaning a lack of oxygen. You know, let's say in the ballpark of 35% or more hypoxia. 
So the point I'm saying is scarring within an organ can cause hypoxia and that can lead to the cell transforming into a cancer cell. Okay. It, it de-differentiates. It becomes like an anaerobic bacteria. That's the mechanism of it. Okay. So fat makes red blood cells stick together in a stack of coins. Rouleau formation means stack of coins in French. Also the chylomicrons can do it cause what we call it also blood sludge. So a typical red blood cell is about seven microns in diameter. Capillary is about five microns. Normally a red blood cell, it has to deform itself to pass through the capillary because it's bigger than the capillary. When you have all this fat, the elevated LDL cholesterol, for example, chylomicrons will stick these red blood cells together. Now it's like a big sandwich. And the big sandwich, it's harder to push these big bulky things through these capillaries. So what's going to happen? Blood pressure has to go up. When blood pressure goes up, you start getting secondary injury and arterial bifurcations causing atherosclerosis. So this is how this fat starts the ball rolling and the snowball effect of things progressively getting worse. Okay, so now I want to show you what's happening in the spleen. So when the blood enters the artery of the spleen, there's two paths that can go on. Most of the blood cells will just pass through a standard uh, sort of artery to capillary to vein, and they're relatively safe because what happens over time is red blood cells become stiffer. They become stiffer because they get externalization of phospholipid. It's a phospholipid at um, phospholipid that moves from the inner to the outer leaflet of the plasma membrane. That's one thing. They also get glycated. So the bottom line is they get stiffer. That's why a red blood cell typically dies, is removed from the system at about 120 days. The spleen is called the graveyard of red blood cells. It takes out the old red blood cells. And the point I'm making is that these red blood cells, then a small percentage of them go into what's called the red pulp of the spleen. And once they go through the red pulp of the spleen, they then have to re-enter circulation. They pass through what are called sinusoids, and they have to re-enter the circulation through these little slits between the endothelial cells. This is an inter-endothelial slits. And these are tighter, let's say in the ballpark of three microns. So the older, stiffer red blood cells, they just can't get through there. It's like doing the limbo and they just can't do it anymore. And so they're removed from the circulation. And the point I'm making is when the spleen gets big, it then has more red pulp. There's more red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets going through that red pulp, and they're getting removed from the circulation at a higher rate. And so that can cause all kinds of problems. This particular guy, there's other mechanisms of platelet removal in the spleen, but you know he dropped his platelets so low, fell, hit his head, and uh, had intracranial bleed. And, and what I'm saying is fatty liver led to intracranial bleeding. That's a big deal. He had to get a craniotomy, and they had to actually do a, um, a craniectomy, take off part of his skull. So I tell you all that because... One problem can lead to others, and don't get me wrong, that's rare for fatty liver to lead, lead to that, but it, it, the cirrhosis, the liver cancer, liver transplant, it could be a big disaster. You, you want to fix problems, you know, the sooner you keep, the, the, the better, okay? So once you get the scarred in liver, you get back pressure, blood going into the spleen. You'll also get these collaterals called varices going into the spleen. The spleen gets big, and it just starts gobbling up more stuff. So fatty liver, yes, it's super common, and it can be a big deal. Fix it the sooner the better with these low-fat diets, plant-based diets. Okay, now, last time I was on Chef AJ, she asked me a question. She said, what is the best book of all time? And I thought about some more, and I said, isn't it obvious? Joan Rivers, men are stupid, and they like big boobs. Uh, a Woman's Guide to Beauty Through Plastic Surgery. I'm just kidding. This is probably one of the stupidest books of all time. But I show it because, uh, and actually, breast size, I never knew a guy that was that crazy about breasts, except one of my wrestling coaches one time was, and he asked his, his, his fiance to get a, implant or he wouldn't marry and she said no but anyways we're not really going to get into that that's a crazy story well, what i want to talk about is breast implant illness ruth hydrich 
had breast implant illness. She wrote an entire book about, you know, she had metastatic breast cancer, had mastectomy, had this, and it's a more common and serious problem than people realize. A lot of women get breast implants after cos after cosmetics for cosmetic reasons. A lot of them get it um, for treatment of breast cancer. So this is her book by Ruth Hydra. She's like world famous, great lady, real smart, who uh, survived metastatic cancer, went low fat vegan, won all these marathons and triathlons. And the point is these breast implants, they can leak, they can leak silicone. They also can be treated, you know, cured, so to speak, they call it that when in processing, when they make them and they contain heavy, they can contain heavy metals that can cause heavy metal toxicity to the patient. They can induce allergic reactions. So, and it's not always easy to get all this stuff out. Uh, they can cause autoimmune disease that can cause infections. When the implants are removed from the body, they should be cultured, not just removed. You always want to culture the site. They can cause a foreign body inflammatory reaction. So this lady right here, her name is Laura Miles. She's an ophthalmologist who had breast cancer, mastectomy, subsequent breast implant illness. And she's got a good lecture, good TED talk on the subject. Um, so I'm just letting you know, this is a bigger, I'm going to revisit this and read more about it, but I'm letting you know, this is a big deal. So if you hear if somebody's having problems after they got breast implants and they don't know why, you should definitely consider the breast plant implant. Not for sure that's the reason, but you want to consider it. Okay, another thing came up. People are asking me recently, how come I don't ever eat bread? And I can tell you the main reason is I couldn't find a bread that I thought was was healthy. Um, I went to all the stores and I looked at them and the best ones were like in the grocery, in the freezer at like Whole Foods, for example. But even still, I couldn't find a brand that, you know, that was consistently sold there that didn't have MSG or MFG or contained some type of oil. Um, there's other potential problems in them with some of the preservatives, like the stuff that sits on the regular shelves that aren't cooled you know, that stuff will sit there for a year. It's not a normal food doesn't sit there for a year without spoiling. So anyways, even though when I was a kid, I see, you know, peanut butter and jellies all the time, three of them in a day. Uh, I'm just letting you know, in my opinion, there's too many problems with modern breads. I don't eat them. The best thing would be if you could make your own. I realized that bread in the past was, you know, a real common food and it was simpler. Didn't have all this modern processing stuff. Okay. Another thing that's come up is what about a lot of women getting uh, lung cancer that never smoke cigarettes? It turns out in some places like China, where there's a lot of air pollution, a lot of women are thought to get breast cancer from that. But it's also the case that a lot of women are thought to get breast cancer, I'm sorry, not breast cancer, lung cancer from cooking oil fumes. So if you're cooking, especially if you're frying anything, first of all, you shouldn't be frying anything. But if you are frying anything, <clears throat> you want to have one of those extraction vacuum hoods to pull the uh, smoke out of the area. Um, it's been shown that that causes a 50% risk uh, reduction of getting lung cancer um, there's some other risk factors. I think radon's kind of overrated because I read about that in the past and it almost seemed like it was a bit of a, a way to try to generate more uh, work contracts. Um, cooking around a lot of fried food can also cause chronic bronchitis. I know with my family, you know, sometimes, you know, my wife's frying some food. And I'm like, you know, please don't do that. Let me get out of the kitchen because it's inhaling it. I find it, you know, I don't like the smell of it. People who work in restaurants where they fry a lot of food, the people who work in the kitchen staff, they have a lot more problems They've tested thousands of people. There's a lot more problems than the people who work out in the dining area. So here's just a sample of the papers, you know, association between lung cancer and, um, uh, you know, air pollution tends to be adenocarcinomas. Plus there was a real famous um, pulmonary, pulmonary radiologist. I think his name was Dr. Gavin. He was a real smart guy. And he said, <clears throat> something is changing in lung cancer. We're seeing a lot more adenocancers and we're seeing a lot more cancers in people who don't smoke. So that was kind of interesting. Uh, he was a, both a pulmonologist who then became a pulmonary radiologist, which is pretty unusual. Um, cooking oil fumes and lung cancer, U.S. population. Here's another one. So there's a lot of papers on this. 
And then here they are, they're able to check metabolites in the urine, indicating oxidative stress and tissue damage from people working in the uh, restaurants where they have cooking oil fumes from frying food. Um, and here's just more of the same types of paper. And then um, this was showing an increased risk of chronic bronchitis. This is the one that showed 50% uh, higher risk of lung cancer if you don't have one of those extraction hoods to suck the fumes out. Um, you know, so do whatever you can to ventilate the area. All right, this is just some mitochondrial toxins. And, and the point I make about this, a lot of times people are totally unaware of these stuff. It's almost like a slow kill. It's just gradually depleting your vitality, vitality and energy. So atrazine is a typical estrogenic uh, herbicide sprayed on corn, for example, GMO corn. Okay, F minus, we talked about that in the water. HNE, hydroxynonanol, that's the stuff that is a toxic aldehyde byproduct of omega-6 oils from lipid peroxidation, um, lead is a contaminant in some foods and whatnot. Um, high fat diet and especially saturated fat inhibits complex three of electron transport. This is the inner mitochondrial membrane in your mitochondria. This is where all the action happens for making energy. Electrons are passed from complex one, coenzyme two, complex three, cytochrome C, complex four, and then they pump out simultaneously protons. H plus is a proton. And then they're harvested by ATP synthase, which lets a proton come back in you know, along the favorable, direct, favorable direction of the gradient, and that's used to make an ATP. This is how the vast majority of energy in the human body is made. And so what I'm saying is, no matter what you do, you're exposed to some of these. So you don't want to add to it by, you know, eating this stuff, okay, or not filtering this stuff, because um, these things sort of deplete you. And if they weaken your cells, your cells will be have less ability to, you know, recover from other diseases. So uh, recently, a friend of mine, his wife has atrial fibrillation, and, uh, you know, she's a real nice lady, bright lady. And she's been telling me, oh, I'm cutting down, I'm cutting down. And, and like I said to her, look, you're messing up. Stop with this cutting down stuff. Like I said earlier, you have to quit. An alcoholic can't drink on the weekends. A cigarette smoker can't smoke on the weekends. You stop smoking. You have to give your body a chance to recover. And AFib, it said <clears throat> that AFib begets AFib. The longer you have AFib, the harder it is to reverse it. And a lot of doctors, they don't know what they're talking about. They keep recommending the Mediterranean diet, which is idiotic. And it's just out of laziness. They hear someone else recommend Mediterranean. They go, oh, okay, Mediterranean diet. Yeah, sure, do that. Okay, they don't know what they're talking about. It allows meat. It allows chicken. It allows fish. It allows olive oil and a whole bunch of other stuff. It's not a healthy diet. person needs to know that. Okay, um, so what else? Some of the risk factors for AFib, you know, obesity, diabetes, hypertension, ischemia. Ischemia is a big one. You start damaging areas of cardiac muscle, and now the conduction pathway from the sinoatrial node down to the ventricles, it'll have to take detours around the uh, infarcted tissue or the damaged tissue, and that can lead to conduction abnormalities, plus chronic hypertension and hypertrophy of the heart with enlargement um, of the diameter and thickening of the muscle wall can also disrupt cardiac conduction, electrical conduction. And these are some other risk factors. So what am I saying? If you got AFib, try to avoid all these risk factors as fast as you can. And hopefully you'll, you'll bounce back into normal cardiac sinus rhythm. And even if you don't consider getting, you know, see your cardiologist, consider getting cardioverted, but don't wait too long. Cause the longer you wait, the less likely you'll be able to cardiovert, cardiovert back to a normal sinus rhythm. They can give you pills, you know, things like for rate control to slow it down. So you have adequate time for ventricular filling. They can give you anticoagulation to try to decrease the risk of a stroke. Uh, they can give you uh, medicines for rhythm control, antiarrhythmics. That's a whole other story. We're not going to go into too much detail here. Uh, eating the healthy diet, same one we just talked about. It's the same diet for everything because that's the diet humans are designed to eat. It makes them healthier, okay? 
All right, what else happens if you can't cardiovert? Well, then you just stand those medicines long-term. Sometimes they can do something called ablation where they'll go in there and put catheters, you know, through your jugular vein, up through your uh, common femoral artery, up into the heart. And they'll try to burn a pathway, uh, like block the unfavorable pathways, keep the favorable pathways. That's a big procedure though. It can take as long as six hours, tends to work better in younger patients. And there's risk of side effects, even death. If it works, great, but it's no walk in the park. For older patients, my cardiology friends say, yeah, you might be better off just going with the rate control medicines and anticoagulation. That's a common medicine in Pixaban, but there's other ones that are used for it as well, Zeralto, for example. All right, so anyways, the, the things just get worse if you if you let atherosclerosis and hypertension go on diabetes. The ascending thoracic aorta has a lot of elastic fibers that are pushed outward after the heart contracts, and then during cardiac relaxation, diastole, they have elastic recall. They come back in, and that maintains flow during diastole, which gets blood to flow throughout the body during diastolic part of the cardiac cycle. It also pushes blood into the coronary arteries. So you lose these elastic fibers. They're trashed by hypertension. And eventually this ascending thoracic aorta becomes stiffened and calcified. And then all of your, your pumping comes from the heart. So pressure has to go up. You get increased uh, systolic pressure and you'll have decreased diastolic pressure, which means a wider pulse pressure, a gap between systolic and diastolic. And the worse that gets, uh, that's not helpful to the patient. Also, here's a normal uh, small artery capillary. The direction of flow is like this. These are the red blood cells passing through the small vessel. The blue circles are the oxygen coming off. These are endothelial cells, kind of spindle-shaped. That's the nucleus of the endothelial cell. The green cells are the skeletal muscle, I'm sorry, the vascular smooth muscle cells just outside of the vessel. Um, this yellow line right here is the basement membrane, basement membrane, all right? So the point being is here's a normal, healthy, uh, small arterial capillary, but once you've got chronic diabetes or hypertension, you start getting hypertrophy of the vascular smooth muscle, and you also get thickening of the capillary basement membrane. So now, like these are the blue oxygen circles, you'll have less oxygen able to pass through this thicker barrier. So you get decreased oxygen delivery to the tissues. So you can see how that could make your cardiac muscle ischemic, make it harder to heal atrial fibrillation. You can see how that might cause uh, decreased energy, decreased oxygen availability to your brain neurons, make you stupid, brain fog. You can also see how if you're trying to heal something, you need more energy production to do anything, to do useful work, to heal things. And you also progressively become at increased risk for cancer because you can reach that Warburg effect of 35% or more hypoxia. So it's all bad. There's, there's nothing good about it. You just want to fix it. And you don't want to say, oh, I'm doing okay. It's under control because you're going to potentially be getting worse if you're not really getting your act together as well as possible. Uh, typical you know, Western diet with all the high fat diet, that'll tend to accumulate atherosclerosis at the carotid artery bifurcation, common carotid artery, external carotid, internal carotid. That's right where it occurs because the abnormal flow with the bifurcation bouncing off of there. And it'll also occur uh, initially in the proximal coronary bifurcations and the other coronary bifurcations more distally, including the small ones. So that's your typical pattern. So the, the pattern to the brain from hypertension and high sodium, that's been called the Asian pattern from the 1970s because they had a very high salt diet and they smoked a lot of cigarettes versus the Western pattern is more of the coronaries and the carotid. Okay, and then one of the big secrets and most doctors don't know this is that it's not just the high sodium, it's, it's the lack of potassium. And that's especially a big thing in African-Americans in the United States. People, you know, when I was taught in residency and fellowship, oh, they're just sodium sensitive. There's nothing you can do. Well, that's actually not true. Richard Moore, MD, PhD, who devoted his whole life to research in this, he said, the problem is not so much to eat that much potassium, sodium, because they don't. He said, it's because they don't eat enough potassium. They don't eat enough plant foods. 
P for potassium, P for plant foods, okay? He calls it a K factor, meaning the ratio of potassium to sodium. And he says it has to be over five to one, giving normal blood pressure. And actually our ancestors probably ate about 25 to one times more potassium than sodium. And that potassium is a vasodilator, sodium is a vasoconstrictor, meaning potassium opens up arteries, potassium, uh, sodium constricts them. So that's a big secret to know and almost no one knows it. Your cells, they basically run on this stuff. Potassium is the most important element in the whole human body. It's what's used to run all your plasma membrane gradients and you generate these chemical gradients. And they're also electrical, electrochemical gradients in the wall of every single cell in your body. And that's how it does useful work. It's essentially like a battery. The human body is brilliant. It's a genius. It knows what to do. You just got to give it the food it wants. And that's what it uses to pump everything. It uses that to pump protons. It uses that to pump amino acids. It uses that to pump calcium. And the relevance is if you eat too much sodium and you deplete yourself of potassium, you can't run these pumps effectively, meaning you can't pump calcium out of your vascular smooth muscle cells. So they stay constricted. They stay clamped down. And when they're clamped down, you're now pumping blood through a constricted system, a narrowed system. So blood pressure has to go up. And that's the great secret of high blood pressure. That's what it's really all about. Okay, so... The body has to maintain constant amounts of ions because it has to maintain osmolality or you'd have cellular swelling, for example, if you had too many ions inside a cell. So whenever you ingest more sodium, you're going to piss out more potassium and progressively become potassium depleted. So that's why if you eat plant foods, where actually our kidneys are designed because all our ancestors ate tons more potassium than sodium. We're designed to be able to excrete the potassium. We're, we, we have trouble... Um, excreting the sodium in ideal amounts, okay? So that was the point. And yes, atherosclerosis is partially reversible in terms of like helping yourself with coronary disease, helping yourself with AFib. This is an atherosclerotic plaque. Here's the endothelial precursor cells replacing the intimal lining, the lining in contact with the arterial flow. The lipid core will reabsorb. The necrotic core, dead cells, that will reabsorb. Lipid core means the fat part. Um, calcification, that will not reabsorb. That's there permanently. The fibrotic tissue, if it's early fibrosis that's still quite cellular, that can reabsorb. When it's acellular fibrous tissue, it won't. So the point is you can shrink these plaques a significant amount. In addition, the endothelial cells, once you stop the high uh, fat diets and you stop the high sodium diets, they'll start to produce more nitric oxide vasodilator. So even if the plaque stayed the same size, they'll vasodilate the artery and, and allow more flow. So you can really get a big benefit. And that can happen relatively quickly. Okay, so here's just one paper showing an example of this. Um, this was done in, uh, in Kenya, and this paper's from 1929. It's from the Lancet Journal. The author's name is Donison. So they had 1,800 consecutive patients admitted to the hospital. So these are inpatients. Inpatients tend to be relatively sick. There was no case of raised blood pressure. So the point I'm saying is it's not some genetic thing. When they ate a healthy plant-based diet like they did back at that time in Kenya, they didn't have any high blood pressure. And it's the same story all over the world. Populations that eat plant-based diets without added sodium and without all this modern processed food, they don't get hypertension. They got the same blood pressure in their teens as in their 70s. Okay, um, another point about overtreated hypertension. Everybody's worried about high pressure, but you know what? You got to watch out for overtreating hypertension. You want to try to find that happy medium, that Goldilocks balance just right. Because if you overtreat hypertension, patients can fall down and hit their heads. Every single hospital in the United States, there's a bunch of old people who fall down, hit their head every day. They go for a CAT scan. Trust me, I'm very familiar with the process. Okay. Um, 
And what I'm saying is a lot of these are from overtreated hypertension. Now, don't get me wrong. They happen for numerous other reasons, but one has to be careful about overtreating hypertension. Okay, harms versus benefits of antihypertensive medications should be weighed in deciding to continue treatment. Antihypertensive medications were associated with an increased risk of serious falls, of serious falls, uh, particularly amongst those with previous fall injuries. Yeah, and we talked about that. If you tie off the carotid artery in a mouse, this is the work of Jack Delatorre. He came up with the great... Uh, theory of chronic cerebral hyperperfusion as being a major cause of dementia, cognitive impairment. If you tie off the carotid artery in a mouse and you then do an autopsy on them, a couple of two months later, they typically become demented. He expected to see a big stroke when he did the autopsy, but he typically found they just had a shrunken brain. That's apoptosis, meaning the neurons are shrinking gradually. When they shrink gradually, they can recycle themselves. That's in comparison with an abrupt stroke where the brain tissue just dies. And so the point I'm saying is, Overtreated hypertension is kind of like that bilaterally. Bilateral lack of blood flow to the brain. Um, you could potentially be losing neurons, plus you're going to at least transiently lose cognitive function. Here's the carotid artery when it comes up to the brain. These small vessels going into the basal ganglia are called the lenticulostriates. Then the artery passes up around the convexity of the brain, and you have these penetrating arteries you know, across the cerebral cortex into the deep white matter. And if you think about it, think about it, you're standing up. The hardest spot to get blood is to the top of your brain. So why do you think your pressure is high? Your pressure is high to get blood up to the top of your brain. And what's making it high is because you're eating a lot of sodium, vasoconstricting. You're eating a lot of um, fat, making your blood thick. You got to pump higher pressure to pump thick blood, like a milkshake instead of like water with a high fat diet. You got to pump higher pressure to get it through vasoconstricted vessels because of sodium, because of caffeine, for example. Okay. Um, so what I'm saying is if you overtreat that blood pressure, you're not going to get as much blood flow to this area where I drew the skull and crossbones. Okay. And that's where I see all these silent strokes. And a lot of them are from overtreated hypertension. They're for other reasons as well, small vessel, cerebral vascular, atherosclerosis, but they're also from overtreated hypertension. And I'll sometimes see hundreds of them in a single patient. Now, down here in the bottom of the lenticulosteriot arteries going into the basal ganglia region, this is where I most commonly see strokes from too high a blood pressure. It can shear the origin of these arteries. You can get a hypertensive stroke, you can get a hypertensive hemorrhage stroke. But these are about, you know, in my experience, like 100 times more common, the ones up here. So I'm just saying, be careful. I think Dr. McDougall's smart about this. McDougall says he doesn't go chasing blood pressures that are only a little bit hypertensive. They have to be significantly hypertensive for a significant amount of time before he'll chase them with meds. So just make sure you talk with your doctor, you know what you're doing, but be careful about overtreating it. Okay, now that first part of the talk was primarily you know, a variation of highlights in nutrition, recent issues in nutrition. Now we're transitioning to part two of the talk. Part two of the talk is going to be a lot about communication. I've had to give a bunch of lectures on communication lately. So uh, that's what I'm going to talk about. And I'm going to start out with a parable. I'm going to read you a parable. Um, and I want you to see if you can guess what this means. I think you'll, you'll know it, but I want to see if you can guess. Okay, you ready? This is the parable of the zookeeper, a zookeeper or a doctor, who knows more? Once upon a time, the zookeeper for the herbivore monkeys went on vacation. A medical doctor agreed to moonlight at the zoo. He figured his experience with talking primates, humans, would serve him well. Unbeknownst to the doctor, the new commissary intern had been feeding the monkeys the same diet as the jaguars. This is known as the Jagoff diet. The herbivore monkeys got sick and they were too tired to climb the plastic trees in their cage. 
Paradoxically, the female monkeys seemed happier because the male monkeys were no longer trying to mount them. The moonlighting MD, he gave them pill after pill, which slowed things down a bit, but the monkeys kept getting sicker. It took two pills to control the monkey's high cholesterol and three pills to control the monkey's hypertension. The MD also ordered an endocrine consult to help for the monkey's worsening diabetes. Perhaps a gl continuous glucose monitor, CGM, with an insulin pump and some artificial intelligence, autoprogrammable, of course, for insulin dosing might help. The MD also wisely consulted the cardiac surgeon to evaluate the monkeys for open heart surgery for coronary artery bypass graft, CABG, usually called cabbage. The surgeon went through the standard consent form with the monkey for cabbage, and this included the risk of graft occlusion of the coronary graft occlusion of the coronary artery bypass graft, myocardial infarction, heart attack, chronic arrhythmia, permanent pacemaker, kidney failure, cognitive impairment, stroke, death, painful death. The monkey was scheduled for the operating room the next day. But then that morning, the zookeeper returned from vacation. The operation was postponed. The zookeeper put the monkeys back on a plant-based diet. The monkeys came off all their pills and made a full recovery. However, the male monkeys started again trying to mount the female monkeys. One of the female monkeys filed a complaint that the zookeeper was misogynist and the zookeeper got fired. Then all the monkeys died. So what was the what was the zookeeper's name? That's the question. Walter Kempner, described as perhaps the greatest doctor of all time by uh, John McDougall. Okay, anyways, so now when I'm talking about giving presentations and lectures, I think if you want to make your presentations good, that they're useful to the audience and enjoyable to the audience, I think you should try every time to have at least one really interesting thing. You know, there's going to be some basics and stuff, but try to have one basic thing like a Copernicus inversion. So this is a painting of Copernicus having a conversation with God by Jan Matejko, the Polish artist from 1872. Beautiful painting. Okay. And also, I think if you want to have good presentations, you got to take some chances. When I was a kid, we used to all love this guy, Evil Knievel. Okay. He was kind of crazy, of course. He would ride his motorcycle and jump over cars and all kinds of things. But we admired him for having guts. We actually used to jump our little bicycles, our little stingrays over stuff. And we used to know his saying, Evil Knievel said, bones heal, chicks dig scars, pain is temporary, glory is forever. And he got a pinball machine named after himself. So you don't have to do, you know, daredevil acrobatic stunts, but you should try to at least go for something in your talks. You know, you'll learn something. The audience will at least get a kick out of it. Even if they don't learn something, they can at least make fun of you for being such a jerk. At least something will happen. It won't just be totally boring. All right. And as part of a talk, you know, I love the comedians. They're like some of the most fun talkers. And I want to speak here for a moment about the anatomy of a joke. And jokes are really sophisticated language skills. Like if somebody's studying a second language, only the really advanced student can tell jokes or even understand a joke in the second language. So the basic anatomy of a joke, and this, by the way, comes from a guy named Greg Dean, and it's based on a theory of humor by Victor Raskin, and they wrote about it in their book, Stand Up to Stand Up Comedy. Okay, so the theory of a joke, the anatomy of a joke. The first line is a setup line, and it carries with it an implied assumption. Everybody knows this. Everybody has something they expect based on this typical first statement. But then the second line is almost like a, a train just switched track. All of a sudden, that you know, key word in the setup line has two meanings and you're jumped to the other meaning of it. 
And this unexpected meaning of the connector word, which connects the first and second line, it creates a humorous surprise. And like, I'll give you an example. Here's a line from Sam Kinison, the comedian. The best thing about being married, there's your setup line, is that it prevents you from getting married again. Okay, payoff punchline. And it's a little bit too like tension and release, tension and release. And tension and release can refer to, let's say, one of our ancestors walking down a path in the woods and they go, uh-oh, is that a coyote? Oh, no, it's just my dog who ran into the bushes. So that, you know, initially you're scared as a coyote. Now you realize, oh, it's just my dog. Huh. You relax. And as that tension is relieved, you let out a laugh, okay? And uh, PGR work is great humorous. Most jokes have to work fast, okay? So the tension is high and then the release. All right, so... Um, I'll just give some examples in real life stuff. You know, my kids were studying, you know, high school English class or something. I'm walking by and they say to me, hey, dad, you know any rhetoric? And I said, yeah, sure. JFK, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you could do for your country. And they go, oh, yeah, that's old stuff. Does anybody use this rhetoric stuff anymore? And I said, yeah, it's like a template. You can take words from your own context and just put them into the template. Ask not what a husband can do for a wife, but what a wife can do for a husband. Ask not what a boyfriend can do for a girlfriend, but what a girlfriend can do for a boyfriend. I mean, that's a pretty good statement by JFK. He's basically saying, I want you to work for me and I'm not going to give you anything. And people like it. They're happy to do it because the way he said it was so good. It's called a chiasmus form where, where a, a, an expression turns backward on itself. My kids liked it. They said, oh, that was good, dad. But if only it was that easy to win arguments with a wife. You know, a lot of times there's other ways to win arguments. You know, my fiance's motto was anything you want, honey. Whereas after marriage it became, I've got the you know what, so I make the rules, okay? Herbert Spencer had said, at the wedding, the woman gets a ring on her finger and the man gets one in his nose. Ben Franklin had said, before agreeing to marriage, a man should have his eyes wide open. After marriage, it's probably best if he keeps them half shut. Ronnie Dangerfield said, what's the difference between having an arranged marriage and marrying for love? You can spend the rest of your life blaming your parents instead of yourself. Okay. And then the other thing I noticed is when I tell jokes like this, all my guy friends are like, oh, that was great. That was funny. I loved it. And all the women are like, do you really think you should be joking like that? And so I said to myself, why is it that women don't like these jokes? And you say, well, if you're in person, a woman doesn't want these types of jokes because she doesn't want the conversation to go there. She doesn't want the man distracted. She doesn't want the man thinking about that. And that's perfectly valid, okay, and true. But they even don't like it if they're not there, if they're far away, a million miles away. So why is it? And I think it's partly because men like sex so much more than women do. It's a form of power for them. And it's almost like when you make fun of it or joke about it, you're like joking about their power and they don't like that. And it's almost like for a man, you know, men are a little stronger, more upper body strength than a woman. And I think men don't like it if a woman makes fun of their physical strength and, you know, devalues it in some way, you know? Like my wife, she said to me, I only need one thing from you. Just one thing, one sperm. That's it. You know, and, you know, I was less than flattered by that statement. So anyways, men can feel that way, too. Now, here's a picture of Oscar Wilde, the great Irish writer, comedian, playwright. And he was great with that chiasmus, too. So sort of like JFK's phrase that turned back on himself, he would say things like, the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. So that's chiasmus, one of the great forms of rhetoric. And if you watch famous speeches, you'll see the speakers almost always get applause when they when they generate a chiasmus. So it's a very popular, it's a very effective way to speak to, it's almost like an impact booster to use a chiasmus form of rhetoric for key things. So if you like have a key phrase that you want to be memorable to an audience, put it into chiasmus or put it into a joke or put it into a rhyme or associate it with a picture. All of those things make it more memorable. 
Oscar Wilde, he said lots of funny things. To win back my youth, I would do anything except take up exercise, wake up early, or be a useful member of the community. This is a beautiful painting of the Royal Academy of Oscar Wilde. Okay, and there was a lot of great things happened in the 1800s with art and literature. It's one of the all-time great decades of, uh, I mean, centuries of art and literature. Okay, a little bit about myself. Um, you know, when I was in college, I was like really nerdy. I didn't know anybody at Stanford except than the wrestlers team, and there weren't that many social events. So when I first came out of there, I was kind of like almost like autistic. And my family would always tell me, no one cares about your books. I was always reading all the time. Nobody wants to talk about your books. And I noticed people like joking. So I got in the habit of memorizing jokes. And I collected all, a book where I kept all these jokes. I collected over thousands of jokes. But nowadays... You can't joke so much because everything is considered intolerant. Women get offended by jokes about sex. If you talk too much about yourself, you're going to get called a narcissist. So I'm like, what's there left to joke about? You know, but anyways, when I'm walking around, you know, I'll come home after work a long day and I'll sometimes like to walk in a little exercise and I'll read a book. Sometimes I'll read a joke book. Okay. You know, you read a funny joke. It's you discover a new joke. It's a real pleasant feeling. It's like a little AO academic orgasm. Okay. So anyways, one day I'm sitting in the kitchen with a joke book and my wife says, why do you read that nonsense? Why don't you get a moonlighting job and make some money for this family? So I say, oh, yeah, right. So you can divorce me and then I got to pay double alimony. No way. I think I'll enjoy my joke book. One of my buddies got divorced and he had gotten a moonlight job before that. He ended up having to pay double alimony. He's working six days a week for the next you know, 18 plus years. And I'm like, I don't want to end up like that. A divorce mule sold into slavery. No way. Now, I like Bill Murray, the famous comedian, and he says most conversation is predictable. You know what the other person is going to say before they say it. And you also know kind of like what you're expected to say. All you have to do is throw in a little surprise and things get fun. And Oscar Wilde had said, some people bring happiness and laughter into whatever room they enter. Others removed it. And as I got older, when I was young, I really admired my dad. He was a real good athlete and a good doctor and he's reading all the time and I wanted to be like him. But he's kind of serious. He didn't talk much. And then I noticed something. I used to think my mom was stupid because my mom didn't read books. You know, I never saw her read a book. But what I noticed was everywhere my mom went, because I sometimes have to go run errands with her. She would trick us. She would get you in the car with her and say she's got one errand. Then she would go do like, a, like three or four of them. You'd be with her all day. But what I noticed is wherever my mom went, everybody's always laughing and cracking up. She's always cracking jokes, cracking jokes. It was just her personality. And I'm like, gee, wherever my mom is, everybody's always happy. And all these people, they love my mother. You know, my dad didn't know that many people. My mom knew everybody. So anyways, I'm like, well, gee, that's a good way to be. And like I said, too, I noticed that nobody ever wanted to talk to me about books, but people would like it when I joked if I felt it safe that I could joke with them. Um, so anyways, what makes a person get funnier? If a person reads a lot, you know, you, you, you just get better with words if you read a lot. If you got another friend that you can joke with, you get practice in those conversations, watch comedians on uh, TV and the Internet. Um, and I also had the experience that, you know, my father used to joke with me, like whenever I did something stupid, he'd go, you just failed your instant IQ test. Okay, so anyways, I kind of had a similar relationship to my kids. Whenever they do something stupid, I'd kind of tease them and make fun of them. And they would sort of snap back at me. And what my kids told me over time was that that was good practice for them. You know, joking back and forth with me, you know, giving them a hard time about some silliness. They then found they were much better at joking back and forth with their friends. And they would use a lot of jokes that they heard from that way. Anyways, there was this psychologist professor at University of North Mexico named Jeffrey Miller, and he wrote a book called The Mating Mind. And Miller said that women like men who are funny because it's an indicator of intelligence that's hard to fake. So I took this 
book and I showed it to my wife. And I said, if you ever divorce me, I will be able to attract another woman with my funniness. And she said, oh no, you don't understand. Women like a man who is confident with a sense of humor. That's different. You are funny like a clown. Women do not like clowns, man. So anyways, that is what it is. All right. Oh, one other quick word here about what's the difference in cure rates of conventional treatments versus vegan treatment for chronic disease. And the key point I'm gonna make on the slide is you want to be skeptical of conventional medicine for treatment of chronic disease. By definition, conventional medicine calls all the following diseases chronic. When it calls them chronic, what it's saying is that they're uncurable. What it's telling you is your disease cannot be cured. We will never cure you, okay? And that's because they're only treating with medicine and surgery. Um, and there's other things that are kind of surprising. You look at schizophrenia, there are much better outcomes treat in uh, treatment at Soteria, these housing complexes you know, that were staffed uh, with people rather than uh, with pharmaceuticals. So what I'm saying is the use of non-pharmaceutical treatments in psychiatric illness is very much under-recognized that it could be much better than most people realize that it is. So schizophrenics at Soteria got much better uh, results. Uh, from non-pharmacologic treatment. Lauren Mosher was a guy who ran that the physician. Okay, diabetes. You know, you never cure it with pills. Pritikin, Kempner, McDougal, Roy Taylor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Bernard, they get tons of patients cured of type 2 diabetes if you catch it early enough before you've lost insulin production uh, in the pancreas. Hypertension. Kempner treated 19,000 patients, okay? Uh, Richard Moore, McDougal, and lots of other doctors, lots of hypertension patients are cured. Most of them are, if they, if again, if you catch it early enough before there's all this arterial damage with capillary basement membrane thickening, extensive vascular smooth muscle hypertrophy and whatnot. Coronary artery disease, Esselstyn, 198 patients in a row, no recurrent uh, cardiovascular events if they actually follow the diet. If they don't follow the diet, they're not gonna get the results. You had one patient who didn't follow the diet and, and had a cardiovascular event. Okay, impotence. Now, I haven't seen a formal study, but there's lots of anecdotal reports of the Johnson coming back to life or improving in its function when a person goes low-fat, low-sodium, vegan. Um, obesity, you know, all the Asians before 1970, rice-eating Asians are all skinny, um, billion out of a billion. Bariatric surgery can work well, a conventional medical treatment, but it does have side effects, major side effects. And there's a risk of recurrent obesity after a couple of years. Garth Davis, he's a sort of famous vegan bariatric surgeon. He noted that, and the patients didn't also improve their diet. It was very common that they would recur after a couple of years of their obesity. Um, arthritis, uh, Dr. McDougall wrote a nice essay called Diet is the Only Hope for Arthritis. And basically the best thing you can do is get your act together. When you go low-fat, low-sodium vegan, you reduce inflammation besides reducing body weight and you get better blood flow to the joint. And that'll often be helpful and potentially lead to you not needing joint replacement surgery. You can go for joint replacement surgery and it sometimes does help, but I would certainly rather not have a joint replacement and everything that goes with that if it could be avoided. I've known you know, some people die from uh, knee replacement surgery. It's potentially a big deal. I've known two people who I knew relatively well who died from knee replacement surgery. I know plenty of other people who had good outcomes, but I'm just saying is why not avoid it? I don't want surgery. I've never had surgery. I don't ever want surgery. Okay, if I can avoid it, autoimmune disease. You know, If you can treat leaky gut, a lot of times the patient gets better. Wouldn't that be a better thing to do to just fix it that way than have to get stuck on, you know, autoimmune, uh, immune suppressing drugs for life? Cognitive impairment, the sooner you catch it, the better. Once you've lost a neuron, it's going to be harder to get that back. Cancer, that's a whole other story. We're not going to get into that today. Um, okay, let's see. Oh, oh, we just, I was just talking about impotence. 
So I'm also doing a little bit of like religious language as applies to veganism. And so I wrote an impotence prayer for all those out there suffering from this terrible illness. Our Father, who art in boner land, solid wood be thy name. Give us this day our daily boner and forgive us our dietary sins as we forgive those who misdiet against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from impotence. Amen. Okay, so that's the impotence prayer. Okay, I'm experimenting with, you know, I might decide to take over a religion and make veganism into religion. People don't follow the, the diet. So maybe if I make it a religion, maybe they'll follow. I haven't, I haven't, you know, come to terms with that yet, but I'm working on that idea. Okay, opener for a talk. The opener should be good. You got to put some good material right at the beginning because nowadays with stuff on video, if an audience doesn't like the first minute of the video, they're just going to turn it off. So the beginning is the most important part of the thing. A lot more people watch the beginning than watch the end. That's for sure. So you need some type of thing to get their attention, an empowering promise, promise them something useful to come out of it, show them a nice picture, and then, you know, have a metaphor, a joke, a rhetorical question, something to let them know this is going to be good. This is not going to be the usual boring stuff like, you know, run for your life. If you see an ASS, that means agenda starts live. They give you this whole list. That means they're using the old school. Tell them what you tell them, tell them what you told them and tell them again. No, no, no. That stinks. That's uber tedious, boring. You don't want that. Okay, word slides. Now, this is one where I know I've broken this rule myself too many times. Most common thing people don't like in a, in a lousy talk is too many words on a slide. And so you want to really try to avoid that. I call it mea culpa, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa, okay? Um, and so, you know, and, and Alexander Solnitsyn, the great Russian writer, he said, anything that adds to the truth subtracts from the truth. So you want to reduce clutter. Um, you can color code the text, which can be nice. Often I'll use red for an angry thing. Not necessarily. Red can also be a good thing. It can be love, the heart, and stuff. But in general, it'll often be a negative thing, like a stoplight. Green will be usually a positive thing if you color code the text. But in general, try to have less word slides and more picture slides. And that's one of the reasons why I, I tend to love neuroradiology talks in comparison to, let's say, an internal medicine talk. Internal medicine shows too many boring word slides put me to sleep. Uh, radiology is good for showing picture slides. So a good speaker should have a lot more picture slides and word slides. As far as picture slides, there's a few things you know. Start with a blank slide. Avoid all the the, the, the PowerPoint templates or the other whatever presentation program you use. They usually stink, okay? Just put your own stuff on there. Minimize the clutter. Have a reading gravity, meaning just like we read from you know right to left and we go from top to bottom, you should kind of move that way with your slides typically. Um, Bill McGowan wrote a good book on giving talks called Pitch Perfect, and he says visual storytelling is a sweet spot of communication. A story is the most memorable way to put words, 22 times more than just factoids. A picture is even 60 times more memorable than just your factoids words. So the best way to give a talk is, and this guy did research on this guy named Pavio, paper from 1986. He said, show a picture and then talk about it. And you don't necessarily want to put much, if any, text on the picture to the extent you can avoid that because... The same part of the brain that hears with the ears, hears words with the ears, also reads it with the eyes versus looking at a picture is processed by a different part of the brain to a large extent. So they can see a picture and hear you. That works well. But if they simultaneously are trying to read and hear you, that doesn't work so well. There's a guy named Johnny Harris. He's got a YouTube channel, I think, by his name. And he's actually pretty good at giving presentations. I don't agree with everything he says. I disagree with plenty of things he says. But he is good at giving presentations. And he likes the idea of having a visual anchor to visually get the person into the scene because we're very good at that and then start talking about it and providing additional information. Dennis Burkett had noticed that years later, he'd run into people who had heard him talk in the past and they typically would remember the drawings and the pictures 
um, or the jokes, and they wouldn't remember a lot of the rest of the talk. So that's another example of the pictures stick with us better. There's even some research study where you could show a person 10,000 pictures and then bring them back the next day and they would remember most of the pictures versus if it was words, they would remember hardly any of the words by comparison. Another thing I like, here's a good quote by George Box. He said, just as the ability to devise simple but evocative models is the signature of a great scientist, so over-elaboration and over-parameterization is the mark of mediocrity. So what am I saying there? A good scientist gives you some key point in a simple form They'll come up with a simple title like Douglas Kell wrote a great paper about iron metabolism, called it Iron Behaving Badly, okay? And they make their paper flow like a narrative versus all the sort of hack work and BS you see in most medical journals, which is the vast majority of the papers. There'll be all kinds of fancy statistics and fancy numbers, but there's no useful point in the whole paper. It's a waste of time. Okay. All right. So here is, you know, the Johnny Harris technique of orientate the audience first with a map. So let's say I'm going to talk about the Pima and the Tarahumara. The Tarahumara live in northern Mexico, Sierra Madre Mountains, Copper Canyon area, Pima in Arizona. They were absorbed into that after the Mexican-American War in 1848. So the point is, you see this slide and you know the Pima are in Arizona eating the sad diet. The Tarahumara in Mexico eating their traditional diet. And then the Pima eat the sad diet. They got all the Western disease problems. The Tarahumara are world-famous ultramarathoners. So that's the idea of visual orientation initially by a map and then show the additional information, drawings or pictures. Okay, and here's an example, same thing. So you look at the Yanomamo, another example of epidemiology confirming the benefits of a low-fat uh, vegan diet. The Yanomamo live in the Amazon jungle, sort of on the border of Venezuela and Brazil. And likewise, no diet, uh, salt added, and they don't have hypertension in their 70s, okay? Same blood pressure in their old age as when they're young. So that's just another epidemiology example. So here's a... Um, uh, a chart, a table form, and it just shows you the westernized diet, you know, American version of it, lots of heart disease, impotence, cancer, uh, East Asian, Japanese, Korean, China, when they were eating tons of rice, they still had a lot of uh, sodium, especially the Japanese, they were eating over 12 grams a day, and that led to hypertension and stroke risk, but they had a lot of vegetables, and it was very low fat, so they didn't have that much cancer, um, much less than a, an American who smoked the same amount because they simultaneously have the synergistic worsening due to the meat and the fat. Uh, South Asians, like in India, a lot of them are real skinny and healthy. And I always thought of them as being really healthy, but I was kind of surprised that they have a, a lot of these uh, westernized type atherogenic diseases and a lot of diabetes. And my conclusion after studying that for a while was because they eat way too much fried food. They eat a lot of fried food and they still eat some dairy with the ghee butter and whatnot. But so what's the way to win this game? Low fat, low sodium vegan and has traditionally been the way to go. You eat lots of starches and then your fruits and vegetables and you're low on all these diseases. I mean, why wouldn't you want to do it? That's the way to avoid it. Okay, it's like winning, you know, the jackpot in Vegas. Okay, everything is good. You're skinny and you don't got all these diseases. Yay. And I've also said that a picture can amplify a metaphor. So I'm going through all these things as ways to help you when you give your own presentations. These are things I've given over a thousand presentations. Okay. So I'm pretty used to giving talks and to a pretty wide variety of audiences. So these are things I've learned. And uh, so you can say, well, you know, to treat chronic disease with pills, you're like a Lilliputian. Whereas if you treat it with vegan diet, you're like a Gulliver. Okay. And conventional medicine to a large extent is tying down the Gullivers. It doesn't want them. And the patients don't like it. I mean, the vast majority of patients will refuse to go vegan. They start going into all, you know, all the arguments that they throw out. So, but the point of this was just that having this nice, this beautiful picture called Gulliver and the Lilliputians by 
uh, Yehan, Vibre, um, Vibert, it's, it just strengthens the metaphor. Seeing that picture, you'll remember Gulliver versus Lilliputian very easily. Um, also drawing these diagrams can help, you know, just showing like, here's a, a normal distribution, all right, the bell curve. And basically here's most people they are screwed. They never get better. They get these chronic diseases and they just crash and burn and they suffer terribly. They get cut open with all these complex operations. It's a big mess. You don't want that. Okay. Here's like what a lot of doctors do. They go, well, you know, Mediterranean diet they've heard is good and they start moving towards lacto-oval, pesco vegetarian, and they still have a lot of problems, but they'll live about an average of 10 years longer, but they still get all the problems. I know tons of docs. They got myocardial infarctions, diabetes, arthritis, all kinds of problems, kidney failure. And then here's like the top 1%, the health aristocrats that go low fat, sodium vegan. That's what I do because I don't want any of these diseases. I'm fit. I'm just about 60 years old. You know, I don't have any problems. That's the way I want to keep it. I want to keep my brain. Also, I read a lot of books and I see a lot of these authors, they progressively start losing it. You know, they're real clever and funny and surprise me. And then as they get, you know, older, start drifting towards 70, they, they lose their edge. And now they start becoming dull, boring and predictable. So I don't want that to happen to me. Well, that's partly what got me interested in all this stuff. Another thing too, is I'll show a simple version of something first. And then once the audience gets that, then I'll move to more complex pictures to elaborate on the details. So here, for example, is my Spartan vegan. I kind of jokingly, I call myself the Spartan vegan because Spartan as in, you know, I was a wrestler when I was younger. And of course I'm a vegan now. And also Spartan in the sense it's, it's simple. It's as simple as it gets. Here's the dietary pyramid I recommend, Spartan vegan diet. Only three foods, starches, fruits, and veggies. Okay, the starches are the majority of calories, then fruits, and then the veggies for some extra nutrients. Okay, the greens got a lot of good things in them. And then I'll take only one supplement that I take is vitamin B12. That's all I need. And at the foundation of it, you want to get all this stuff as good as you can as well. Have a good relationship with your family and friends. Get along with other people. Exercise. Do both some strength exercise, some aerobic exercise. Get your sunshine by going outside. is much better than taking the pills. Get your sleep. And religion also makes people healthy. Religion is almost like, you know, oh, you shouldn't talk about religion. Well, you know what? Religion makes people, you look at all the blue zones, they're all religious. Healthy people, religion makes you healthier. It gives you more sense of purpose and meaning in your life. I know lots of atheists that ended up drug addicted, committing suicide, all kinds of problems. Okay. In life, you get knocked down and life is tough. So it helps make people more resilient. So I think we should talk about it. I think it's a disgrace that it's not talked about. Okay. Now here's what I meant by going from that simple you know, food pyramid to a more complex one. I call this the diet nirvana pyramid. So down at the bottom, the health hell is sort of the paleo, keto, low carb morons. And then the sad diet, you know, the fat, sick, stupid, unattractive, untouchables, minimum wage proles, drinking tap water, you know, they're dead about 50 to 65. And then you gradually work your way up towards diet nirvana. Okay. The Mediterranean diet with all the pseudo intellectual ignoramuses, Ivy League faculty don't know their head from their, you know what, um, still allowing wine, cheese, all this stuff. And that's not good. And that's recommended to way too many patients. That's a stupid thing to do. Okay, then lacto-ovo, pesco. And one gradually works their way up. The philosophic vegans, finally no processed food, the junior nirvana, assistant nirvana, associate nirvana, full nirvana. And by the way, if you want this, what you could do is if you just hit, I don't know if I can get myself off the screen here, but if you, um, if you just hit the print screen button, you could make a copy of the slide if you like it. People sometimes want to do that. So that's a way you can save a picture of an image from a talk. And if you're, want, if you're interested in something, that's a way you can keep a, your own picture of it, make your own list of stuff. Okay. Uh, and I just want to say, you know, scientists and doctors, we love our models as much as the artists do. 
pretty common fantasy. You teach her how to become skinny, but as soon as she's skinny, she don't want nothing to do with you no more. Okay, preparing a talk. When you're preparing a talk, what should you do? First step is pick a topic you really like because that will energize you to study it deeply. You know, Goethe had said, in order for a man to learn a complex subject, he must love it. You have to really be interested to learn it well. And I always was that way. When I was a resident, I knew I was going to be a great doctor. And so like the attendings would sometimes tell me, I want you to talk about this. Like, let's say I'm rotating through peds. Talk through, talk about a hiatal hernia. And I'm like, no, I can care less about that. I'm not going to do it. I would always just refuse. I never cared. I would talk. I would say, I want to talk about meningitis. I would actually get the other docs who didn't want it. Residents didn't want to do their spinal taps. I'll do their spinal taps because I always wanted to be good. So even though that got me in trouble lots of times, uh, I think that's a good way to be. Uh, Ayn Rand. Here's what Ayn Rand said. By the way, I think Ayn Rand's the smartest woman who ever lived. She's a genius. And yeah, everyone says she's bitchy. You know what? Read her books. She's a genius. The more you read her, the more amazed you'll be at how brilliant and awesome she was. Okay. She says, when you get your purpose right, and this is clear to your subconscious mind, your writing style will be right. And I think she's exactly correct on that. If you know what you're doing and you know why you're doing it and you pursue it with both your mind and your heart, your subconscious mind will also pursue it and remember it and organize it well for you. Uh, make a folder on your desktop and put everything related to that talk into that folder. Uh, read books about it. Make mind maps about it. A mind map is when you put the central topic in the center and then you put everything connected to it around it. And the great thing about a mind map is it's not in a specific order. So you can just easily keep throwing things in there. You don't want to order things until you're ready to make the, the final version of the talk. And because then you have to struggle through organizing them in the ideal order. But have conversations with people. A lot of stuff comes out of that. They'll ask you questions that you hadn't paid attention to. They'll show you gaps in your reasoning. And that's very helpful. Do your talk in a smaller venue before you do it in a bigger venue, et cetera. Um, preparing yourself for game day. Okay. Game day is a day you give your talk. And it's I say, don't lift weights heavy. Like don't do heavy squats, you know, a couple of days before. So you want your energy level to be high. Um, get some extra sleep the night before. If you're giving a talk in the morning, just do your pre-lecture routine, which is uh, typically I'll guzzle down 32 ounces of beet juice, chase it with 16 ounces of water, like about two, two hours before the talk, at least one and a half hours before the talk. And I got real good energy. Um, if you're giving a talk in the afternoon, you might want to eat a little breakfast with a variety of foods, not too heavy in the portions. You don't want to eat heavy because otherwise you'd be sleepy. Review the talk earlier in the same day. Get rid of the blast slides. Only keep the good slides. Here's an example of peak performance mentality. This is called the Yerkes Dachshund curve, and because um, and you want to get yourself right. So the right attitude is you're energized. You're sort of in a flow mood. You're motivated. You want to do it. Um, it's sort of challenging but comprehensible. And this is where you want to get yourself. You don't want to be lethargic because then you don't have enough energy to do a good job. But you don't want to be over anxious or stressed out. I used to know when I was a resident, there were some people in my program that'd be so stressed about giving a talk, they would um, take beta blockers to slow their heart down. Okay, I was the opposite. I always knew I had a ton of stuff to say and I was always wanted more time. And um, so, you know, I was a little bit of a show off. I don't care. Um, and that's part of feeling like you're learning a lot. And you have something to say. Uh, so if you really want to talk about the subject, then you're happy to have the opportunity to talk. Okay, you know, most of the stuff I'm by myself or lonely. Okay, having to talk is, you know, I get people to listen to me for a change. Okay, that's good. Now, the guy who really helped me psychologically was uh, Brian Tracy. I think his book here, Maximum Achievement, it really gets you upbeat into a strong, positive psychological state of mind. Okay, and that's part of having optimal performance. But again, like Ayn Rand had said, if you know what you're doing and you know why you're doing, like, okay, I really want to talk about, let's say I want to understand diabetes. 
then you're enthusiastic to do the whole thing. The whole thing is a pleasant thing. You know, and Johnny Harris had commented on it. You've got accountable motivation. You're enthusiastic. You want to learn more about the subject. And having the talk is great. It energizes you to prepare the information. So it's one of the best things you can do if you want to become an expert on a subject is write a book about it. Give a lecture about it. Okay. Uh, this is just one brand of beet juice. You can drink any one you want, but guzzle 32 ounces of this at least an hour and a half to two hours before. It's called Hydrate Before Your Orate. Bill McGowan's the guy who pointed this out. Uh, everybody kind of knows it though, but because you don't you don't want your mouth to be dry, that makes it hard for you to talk. Chase it down with some water, you know, either bottle of water or if you've got reverse osmosis, which I usually drink, um, chase it down with some water. And uh, that can make you both hydrated and you can have an optimal blood glucose level through the talk and you'll you'll be hitting on all the cylinders. The other thing is for long-term energizing you to do something, always do intellectual work as soon as you wake up in the morning. That's when you are smartest. When does an animal need to be smart? When it's hungry, you fast it overnight. So you get this just right surge of cortisol in the morning that energizes you. You get ghrelin going to your brain and you're smart. So do your intellectual work first thing in the morning. Okay, have an intense focus on one thing. Uh, when I would be interested in figuring out something, figuring out hypertension, figuring out diabetes, uh, figuring out cancer, I would try to just stoke myself, immerse myself in that subject for months at a time, whatever it took till I felt like I knew it as well as I could reasonably know it. Um, I have a lot of respect for religion because I, I was interested in, you know, trying to become a great scientist, doctor, achiever, like these geniuses. And so I read the biographies of tons of geniuses. And if you have to have something that's making you feel this is worth going above and beyond in your effort. And I would see tons of people who created the greatest art, architecture, literature, et cetera, they had this religious devotion quite often. And I think a lot of modern art and architecture has gone into the garbage can because there's nothing behind it inspiring it. You need good technique to produce whatever art or skill you're trying to produce. But having an inspiration, whatever that might be, could make you better. And I saw that I could be potentially like one of these guys like Thomas Aquinas who could unify multiple different fields. So that's what I saw as my potential. And I'll just give you one example. In, in 2020, when there was the recent plague, and nobody knew what was going to happen. I said, God, I had like six ideas in my head for books. I wanted six books I wanted to write. I'm like, holy shit, I might die before I ever write these books. How can I make this happen? And I read about Isaac Newton. He had isolated himself in 1665 when there was a plague here in England. And he just went to the family cottage in Woolsthorpe. And all he did was work on his scientific ideas all day. And he made great discoveries. That was called the Anno Mirabilis, the miracle year, 1665. Discoveries in optics, physics, calculus, gravity, astronomy. Okay, and I also thought about this Irish monk, St. Columba, and he had gone to an isolated island monastery off the coast, and he had, you know, reproduced all these great uh, books of traditional classical learning, um, and he made, you know, he cooperated with the group making the Book of Kells, a Latin version of the Bible with Celtic art and calligraphy, and it's very impressive achievement. So anyways, what I did was I just isolated myself for one year, no social media, almost zero social interaction. I would not speak to a single person uh, in terms of a unless I had to uh, for an entire year. And, and during that year, and when you, they also have said, there's a good YouTube channel, it's called Inside the Score. I think that's where I heard it first. Resources are the enemy of creativity. The point being is I read about Robert Piercek who wrote Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And he said, what he would do is go to bed early because you're stupid at night and wake up early before you have to go to work and start writing. So I did that every day. I'm just letting you know, I was able to publish six books in one year by following this to the T. I figured this is my last chance to do it. I'm going to do it. And that's how I did it. Okay. So you can't be normal and do a big achievement. 
you have to be obsessed with that achievement, whatever it be, and focus intentionally on it. And then you can get amazing things done compared to your usual potential. That's how you do it. Okay. And so anybody that tells you, oh, I want to be well-rounded. I never saw a great achiever who was well-rounded. You can't be well-rounded and be a great achiever as far as what I've seen. And I've been around a lot of great achievers. They're obsessive, compulsive sort of maniacs to achieve in their field. Um, what does fiber do? Okay. So now this is just an example of giving a talk. I could talk to you about fiber and show you a word slide, but it's so much more obvious once I show you a picture. You eat the fiber because it attracts water to the stool and it softens it up. So when you take a poop, it's soft when you defecate like a cow patty versus if you eat a lot of meat and processed food, you don't get enough water in the stool and it comes out hard like a goat pellet or, uh, you know, a Tootsie Roll or something. So when you when you're constipated, you're tightening up your abdominal muscles, straining the stool to defecate. That's called a valsalva maneuver. The back pressure causes all kinds of problems. This is abdominal pressure syndrome as described by Dennis Burkett. And the point I'm just showing is how easy it is to understand this when you have a picture in front of you compared to just the text. Straining at the stool, high pressure in the rectal veins, you get rectal hemorrhoids. The back pressure is pushed down into the veins of the scrotum, you get a varicocele that can make you constipated. So constipation can cause infertility through a varicocele because that varicocele, the big swollen veins, heats up the testicles. All right. Because the stool's dried out, it'll form little rocks of stool called fecalis or appendicolis. They block the appendix, which is connected to the cecum of the colon. The mucus secreting glands continue to secrete. The appendix swells up. The mucus can't get into the rest of the colon, blocked by the appendical lift, the fecal lift. So this will pop. That's appendicitis. Much more common in meat and processed food eaters than in vegans or you know high-level vegetarians. Back pressure straining of the stool causes outpouching of the sigmoid, the distal part of the colon. This is called diverticulosis. When they pop, diverticulitis. All right. Stomach pops into the chest. You get a hiatal hernia, HH. You get gastroesophageal reflux, GERD, G-E-R-D. That causes transformation of the lining, Barrett's esophagus, esophageal cancer. So anyways, and also that back pressure is transmitted in the legs, varicose veins. So the point I'm making is a picture worth a thousand words. So much easier to understand a concept. Tight pants can have some similar effects. Tight pants are also over the pelvis. The pelvis is in continuity with the abdomen. So that transmitted back pressure can lead to hiatal hernia, gastroesophageal reflux, can be uh, tight on the private parts, can cause pain in the private parts, can compress the nerve going down the lateral thigh. Lateral femoral cutaneous nerve can cause something called neuralgia parasitica. So this is tight pants syndrome. So wear looser pants, wear suspenders. You can avoid that. All right. So now this picture here, another part of giving talks is knowing the body language. And it used to be most talks were in person and body language is a little more important when you're walking around on stage. There's a guy by the name of Mark Bowden. He gave a TED talk, gave a real nice lecture. He talked about most of the time your hands should be about the level of your belly button, the umbilicus. This is called the truth plane. And I noticed without even thinking, I always have my hands at that level. With my palms open. You're showing that you don't have a weapon. Okay. When you're talking to a person that puts the other person at ease. And I always have my hands right there when I'm consenting patients for a procedure without even knowing it. I just would go into that. And he would say, you don't want your hands too low because that's kind of the color of the grotesque plane down below, like a fig leaf or at your side looks kind of the dull, boring way to stand. He says, you don't want your hands up high too much because that looks, you look like you're crazy unless you do it transiently. Transiently, he calls it the passion plane. So when you hit the high points, you can sort of sort of reinforce that point by having your hands high transiently. He calls this the passion plane to accentuate like a key point of a talk. Like you go, blah, 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 this, Okay. Uh, so anyways, Mark Bowden's got a good lecture on that TED Talk. When you smile, a real smile includes the eyes. It's called a Duchenne smile. When you really are enjoying something versus sort of a, a little smile with only your lips is a fake smile, you know. 
Okay, and you can have open body language, your hands are apart versus closed body language. So closed body language means a person is skeptical. So if you're trying to talk about something or sell them something or convince them of something, if they're going like this, or hmm, that means they're probably not buying it. That's closed body language. Okay, and then, you know, you want to be a good public speaker, look at the greatest public speaker. Look at these comedians, okay? You know, the some of the greatest comedian routines of all time were Eddie Murphy, you know, back in the old days, and Sam Kinison. And, you know, Eddie Murphy would tell stories, do all these imitations. They're great. And Sam Kinison could make his voice to all kinds of things. Um, so if you want to be good at comedy, watch the great comedians. Okay. The speaker's voice, like I said, too, the great quote by Bill McGowan, hydrate before you orate. You're going to have a hard time speaking if your mouth is dry. Milk can cause increased mucus secretion and make it harder for you to speak. Um, let's see what else here. Got to pause more. And I probably have a tendency to go too fast. Um, and I should kind of slow down a little bit. And I try. Um, having a little pause, at least, gives the audience more time to. Nice thing about the Internet, a person can always watch it again if they liked it. I know a lot of times when I watch talks, I'm, I'm, I'm bored. I wish they would go faster. That's partly why I tend to speak maybe too fast. Um, try to speak about specific events and, you know, sort of be bold and audacious because people like that. They understand that. There's a tendency when you get around a controversial topic, you start you know, dancing around the edges of it with abstract words, but abstract words don't heat the blood. Gary Spence, he's a real famous writer, lawyer guy, and uh, I think that's good advice. Um, here's how to tell a story in terms of like, if you're making a YouTube video or describing a subject, I, I, I made this up, by the way. There's plenty of people to tell you how to tell a story, but I made up this mnemonic here, hype sock, okay? A hook is something interesting right at the beginning, an intro to the topic. There's gonna be some problem that you're trying to solve. Give some examples of the problem, you know, make it real ideally with some experience from your own life. If you, if you have any, a solution to the problem, a little outro, how the solution, some details about it, a call to action, how they can solve the problem for themselves or a keeper message, a keeper meaning, you know, take home points. Like what are the three things or one, two or three things worth remembering? Okay. From the talk. Anytime you want somebody to remember something, you want to, if possible, have it in some type of story connected to it. Because our brain just remembers stories. You know, there's a quote, the brain is a story processor, not a logic processor. If you talk facts, you just overwhelm people and they forget everything. But if you put it in a story, you put it into a rhyme, into a metaphor as the key concept, you know, embodied in a, in a photograph or a drawing, then usually that'll stick with people. And like I said, too, if you see a picture you like, you want to remember that, hit that print screen button, save it, and you, you get a copy of the picture. Okay, a few words on creativity. Uh, curiosity is a secret of highly creative people. And I think that's a key thing. Some of the smartest people I know in my life, they had a real desire to learn. And that curiosity led them to really explore a subject and become a high level expert at it. You have to be open-minded, willing to accept other viewpoints. A lot of doctors are too set because they don't know any better. And they're just stuck in this, it's either drugs or surgery or you know my way or the highway. And they're not realizing there is a lot of great information in the nutritional literature, toxicology literature, and sometimes in other literatures to understand some of these diseases and help patients. Um, talk to a variety of experts. Try to get opinions off the cuff if you can, where there's no referral pattern involved or money involved. Um, read in a wide variety of fields. Different fields will see a topic from different points of view. A lot of people, great creative artists, like to go for long walks. Here's Beethoven going for a long walk. Emerson, Nietzsche were other famous persons who like going for walks. There's plenty of other ones, too. Um, you know, as soon as you have a good idea, always have notebooks around your house or a notebook, in your, a note card in your back pocket and a pen. 
and write the idea down. Because a lot of times you'll have a flash of insight of a good idea. It'll just come to you. Your subconscious mind is sort of pushing it into consciousness. And you want to write that down real fast. Otherwise, you'll lose the information. I'll have stacks of note cards. Like here, here's my desk. I've got tons of stacks of note cards of all these different ideas I've had. Okay. And I just write them down. So then I'll, I'll go back and look at them later when I get some free time. And that's very characteristic of it. Okay. And, and you're going to be a bit of a workaholic. You know, anybody who's a real high achiever or anything intellectual tends to be a bit of a workaholic. John Malloy wrote an interesting book called How to Work the Competition into the Ground and Have Fun Doing It. And he would talk about, he studied a lot of really bright, creative people. And a lot of times what leads somebody to a breakthrough in their field, to transform a field, is they, they've got a little bit of guts to get past the controversy and they stick to it for a long amount of time. Um, and to really get good at something, a lot of times, I, I love this painting here. It's called Sadak in Search of the Waters of Forgetting by John Martin. You're, you go over one obstacle, and there's, then there's a little bit of a flat plateau, then a new obstacle. And you just have to accept the fact it's going to be a bit of a long grind to, to get to the top of the mountain of expertise in your subject. But it's also fun. Um, and I would describe for a doctor the path to original work is, first of all, you got to grind out all the you know pre-med stuff and uh, high school, college stuff. Um, and that's a bit of a long grind. Then residency fellowship is a lot of fun because you're constantly rapidly improving as you go from, you know, junior assistant to full assistant to doing the entire procedure by yourself. Let's say like imaging guided surgery in my experience. And then you get into your attending level. That means you're done with all your training. You're now a full attending physician wherever you work, you know, university or private practice. But then you, you get hit with a new decision. You come to a crossroad. Am I just going to generate billing codes and, you know, call it a day and go home? Or am I going to try to keep learning and make original discoveries or unify different fields? And unfortunately, the boring path is usually the safe choice. You get experience. Most doctors are overworked, you know, at risk to burnout. And generating billing codes pays the bills, makes everybody in the game happy um, in terms of generating the bills. But if you want to learn new things, you have to push yourself harder than that. To do original work, you got to read in other fields. You have to pursue controversial ideas. You have to risk even potentially being fired to follow the truth wherever it leads you. And unfortunately, in medicine, you know, like I said, too, I like being an athlete better than being a doctor in the sense that if an athlete's really good, everybody likes the athlete. The owners of the team, if it's a professional team, likes the athlete. The coach likes the athlete doing really well. The other guys on the team, they like it. The other guys from other teams, they respect them. Uh, the fans like it when an athlete gets good and is doing well, but it's not like that in medicine. The better you get, you start to go beyond conventional stuff because conventional stuff is usually a standard standard of care based on patients that are cognitively impaired and can't even do anything on their own. Okay, And when you start going beyond that, a lot of the stuff you find, it's not profitable anymore. So no one cares about it. You know, the big pharma, the big chemical companies, organized, big organized medicine. They don't see any profit of all these extra ideas. You know, the doc's thinking, I got to do these things because I can save all these patients, help all these people. This is all great. And they're like, hey, where's the billing code for that? What are you doing? We need you generating money. Okay, what are you doing? BSing with all this stuff. And you look, look at McDougall. No one would send him a referral. Esselstyn, they didn't want him <clears throat> to see patients. He had to make a big fuss to work that out. Uh, T. Colin Campbell, they tried to fire him. And that's kind of the treatment that non-conventional money-making research gets. So it takes some courage and bravery and you have to have a sense of purpose. And that's also why I'm a believer having a religion that makes you say, I must do the right thing, even if the consequences for me aren't financially favorable. Uh, it helps. You need something to motivate you. 
Okay, now Aristotle figured out a whole bunch of things a long time ago. A lot of people think Aristotle was the smartest guy who ever lived. Other people say it was Newton or it was Einstein or a few other ones. Um, but he figured out a lot of this. He called it logos, ethos, telos, pathos, and kairos. Logos is the logic, the words themselves, the text, the reasoning of it. Ethos is a lot of ethics, credibility. Do they believe the author? Does he have credibility with the audience for whatever the reason? People tend to believe too much in credibility, okay? For example, somebody has an MD. That doesn't mean they know anything about nutrition. Most doctors, in my experience, they don't know anything. They just default to saying the Mediterranean diet, which is completely ignorant. Also, I'll tell you, a lot of vegan experts, they might know a lot about food, but I think there's a lot of them. They have not studied toxicology, and toxicology is this big thing. It's not going away. It's the elephant in the room. And I think if you want to be a top-notch health coach expert, you have to study toxicology because it's, it's, it's big. It's not a minor thing. It's a major thing. Okay, telos, what is the purpose of the talk? And that's a big thing too. You look at a scientific paper, if they're just writing it to promote a drug, the whole paper's worth it. You shouldn't even read it, okay? Um, are they genuinely trying to understand something? And is what they're trying to understand, is it useful? What is the purpose of the talk? Because that will guide the direction everything it goes. Uh, pathos, what is the emotion? A lot of that is what's the desire of the audience and everything relevant to that. Um, a lot comes out of there. And then what's the timing of it relative to the context of the moment and the topic? So there's a whole bunch more detail if anybody wants to read it. The text is all here. Aristotle figured all this stuff out. And the guy was pretty awesome. Uh, his, his publications, though, were often lost to us. And we end up with student notes of his stuff. So we don't have a lot of his best material, unlike Plato. Plato was a little wiser and street smarts in terms of preserving his writing. So we get, you know, right from the horse's mouth from him, unlike student notes that we get so often with Aristotle. By the way, Ayn Rand loved Aristotle. He was your favorite philosopher who ever lived. And there's good reasons for that. Okay, quote, um, here's Brian Tracy, the guy down here, speak to when he says, there's no limit to how good you can get at public speaking. Um, you know, the more you practice it, the better you get. Winston Churchill, a great speaker himself, said there was nothing like oratory. It can make a commoner a king. He also said a speech should be like a woman's skirt, long enough to cover the subject, but short enough to create interest. Okay, um, Zig Ziglar, I like his quotes here. He says, logic gets people to think but emotion gets them to act. Yep, you want to have that emotion in there if you want to really motivate a person. Zig Ziglar went on. Duty makes us do things well, but love helps us to do them beautifully. And he's right there too. And that's going to come up with a Schopenhauer quote that being a professional makes you competent. You can do the item that you need to do. But unless you have a personal love for that subject or a special motivator, your work's usually never going to get above average. Okay, Ralph Waldo Emerson, a truly great orator is a hero, a person speaking with a strong, good purpose that enables them to transcend average and mediocre and monotonous into something special and good. Okay, Simon Sinek, he's kind of a popular motivator speaker on the internet, and he said one thing that I thought was great. He said, the most important thing is that you show up to give, to give the audience something useful. If you're only showing up to promote a company, a product or whatever, the talk's probably going to be half-assed and mediocre. If <clears throat> you're trying to, you know, really help the audience or share something special, it's going to be a good talk. Um, okay. It's okay to digress if the digression is interesting. Ray Bradbury, what would Hamlet be without digression? Uh, Brian Tracy, they have to see your face. And that's the thing is there's some pretty good educational YouTube channels where the speaker doesn't ever show their face, but they're certainly not exciting or emotional. Uh, Brian Tracy emphasizes, you know, it could often be not much different than radio unless they see your face. Uh, you need to make eye contact. Jack Valenti, he's a speechwriter for JFK. He said, well, he said, yeah, you got to see the face in 
the eyes of the person to make eye contact in order for the audience to establish rapport. That's emphasized by a lot of these books and lectures on speaking. Um, Jordan Peterson, kind of a famous guy these days, he said, you should bring in your own personal experience. That's what makes it real for the audience. I thought that was a clever quote. Okay, here's the Pitch Perfect book by McGowan, quite good on the subject, real long, goes into excessive detail, but it does go into some things that I thought were helpful. Brian Tracy is a real good, upbeat guy on the subject of public speaking. Okay, on telling the truth. Telling the truth can be rather risky. It's much easier to be half-assed and mediocre, okay? Everybody will think your talk was boring, waste of time, but you don't get into trouble. Telling the truth is what gets people into trouble. Uh, Voltaire said, I'm very fond of the truth, but not at all of martyrdom. Voltaire also said, some people think Voltaire was the greatest writer who ever lived. Will Durant would say that. I think he's, he was great, but not necessarily the greatest who ever lived. Anyway, Voltaire would say, I want my doctor to believe in God so that he does not rob me. And I would actually agree with that statement. I think that having a religious component to the public way of looking at things, it raises the significance of the individual. And Iran said the same thing. The most important minority is the individual. If you grant rights to the individual, you thus have granted them to everyone. And I think that's a smart way to phrase it because that protects people from BS. If you don't care about the individual, then, then most of the time, quite often, big money, there's more money involved in tricking a person and ripping them off than there is in helping them. So if you don't have that ethical component to working with people, there's going to be a tendency towards unethical stuff because that's where the money is. Plato said, no man is more hated than he who speaks the truth. George Orwell, in times of universal deceit, speaking the truth is a revolutionary act. Okay, then I talk about the difference between an athlete and a medical scholar. Okay, and here's another quote by Ayn Rand. True scientists are essentially loners. They pursue knowledge for the sake of knowledge. A scientist who discovers knowledge and shares it to benefit others is the greatest benefactor of mankind. Such men should be considered heroes, but such men are not regarded as heroes. They are the most hated, blamed, denounced men in so-called humanitarian societies. And she's right, because the sad truth is the public is the proles, the proletariat, all the poor people. There's no money in helping them. You get money from helping big companies. They got tons of money to pay you off to help them, okay? And that's why so much misinformation gets told to the proles, okay? I've had lots of friends tell me they can't make sense out of nutrition and a lot of other health issues from looking at the internet because there's tons of contradictory information. Now, when I think of giving a scientific talk, I often think of this graph here. I call it the multiple AOs, multiple academic orgasms, some useful basic information, interesting details, showing the connections, AO, academic orgasm, okay? And then you get back down to basics. And you can also call this common sense, technical information that everybody ought to know. And then some of this is a little bit more specialty, more specialized and more advanced, but it's fun nevertheless, all right? And that's one way to look at giving an educational talk. Another way to look at it though, and this is a little bit more of the drama where the emotion comes in. And this is called the hero's journey. Joseph Campbell sort of sort of became famous for popularizing this concept of the hero's journey. And this can be applied to lots of the most famous movies and famous books. You know, like, let's say we're talking about Dorothy, okay, in The Wizard of Oz. She starts out in home sweet home in a familiar, well-known world and environment during her childhood and her adolescence. Everything is great, copacetic, okay? Then something happens, something big. There could be a transformational event like the tornado in Kansas, it could be for other stories. 
being called to action, you know, Rocky's given a shot at the title or some other hero of some famous story is called to some other world, some other environment, things are unknown, frightening, a departure from familiar home. You make mistakes, you screw up, you didn't realize something, you're lazy, you're clueless, you lose, you get beaten up. Yeah, new enemies you didn't even know existed. Okay, and then you hit rock bottom. Okay, and this is the hero's journey type of story. And the hitting rock bottom for a lot of us in the health and nutrition world is we went through a time of very poor health. You know, my story, for example, I got fat in my mid 30s for a couple of years and I couldn't lose the weight. I got up like over 220 pounds. It was quite embarrassing. My whole family's mocking me and I didn't know how to get out of it. Exercise more, eat less, didn't work for a couple of years. And, you know, one of my, uh, my sister in law said to me, she goes, If you're such a great doctor, why are you so fat? Okay. And that was rather embarrassing. And my parents were sick and I was feeling like I was failed a little bit as a physician. Why are my parents sick? If I'm so knowledgeable and obviously I wasn't, I knew drugs and surgery, but that wasn't good enough. I wish I had known this, you know, nutrition and toxicology stuff earlier. I could have kept my patient, my parents healthier for a long time as well as some, a lot of friends and family, but I did it. You know, I did the best I could, but I did not know. So anyways, then you start trying to learn the new stuff and you start trying to implement it in your own life and with friends, family, and patients. And what ends up happening is you make some progress, but instead of being a nice, pleasant, upward climb of a hill, it's not like that. You go up two steps, knock back down, two steps up, one step back, two steps up, one step back, and sometimes a big setback. And it's very frustrating, but you have to believe in the goal and have a sense of the long-term picture. And this is going to come up in the idea of art, the idea of inspiration, the idea of a role model. So what I'm trying to say is great heroes in nutrition and health and toxicology, in a sense, they're like great literature. They're like great art. They inspire you. This is something that could be done. You know, I could never have as much fun of a life, achieve as much as Dr. Kempner, but his having existed and me knowing about it can inspire me to do the best I can with the opportunities that I have. Okay. So that's why I think great heroes, role models, and coaches are so valuable, even though you can't fully imitate them, they show you what is possible. And that's what Ayn Rand and Aristotle talk about. Aristotle says, literature is more important than is history, because history only shows you what was. Literature shows you what could be. And Ayn Rand said the same thing. As, that's what she wanted to do, show society the idea of an ideal man such that younger people could try to imitate him, and they would give them a sense of hope something to aspire to. And I mean, I'm going to get back to another quote here. So anyways, this is the hero's journey of hitting rock bottom and bouncing back and making the most you can out of your life, what's left of it. Okay. And so I think it's a great inspiring concept. And it also helps you analyze literature and movies, et cetera. And one of the things I would talk about, one of my general points about communicating better and giving better lectures is I noticed that I love comedians. They're joke, joke, joke. I like talking with friends. We joke. And then we talk serious, joke, talk serious. I used to like it when my dad would teach me stuff. He wasn't around that much. He was working all the time. So when my dad was around, I loved it. And my dad would teach me stuff. And a lot of times he'd make fun of me as he was teaching me. He goes, you just failed your instant IQ test. What about this? You just failed your instant IQ test. And it was kind of fun. He was, he was, he was teasing me, but he was helping me. And I had some coaches that were kind of like that too. And I really liked him. Um, so anyways, then I noticed, you know, some of the famous speaker, motivational speaker types, guys like, you know, Zig Ziglar, Brian Tracy, motivational speakers. They're good but they ain't like my coaches or my dad or my friends. They're a little more narrow with what they consider safe material and whatnot. And then you see a political speech and you'll see they're going off in their one direction, playing the games they play. You see religious speakers and they got some good rhetoric, but they also playing it in the straight and narrow to large extent. And then you go to academic talks and anybody that's been to a lot of academic talks, they're amazed at how boring most of them are. 
especially if it's like a research talk at a national meeting. And there's a reason for that. In a national meeting research talk, lots of people don't even speak English. They're only given, you know, 10 minutes to present some complex thing. But man, are they formal and boring. And what am I saying? You know, a doctor talks to a patient. They got to be real polite and formal because, you know, you don't know if the patient's crazy. Lots of patients have cognitive impairment and they're really slow. So you have to talk in a way. But what am I trying to say is my goal is trying to make academic talks better. And so what I'm saying is the conclusion I've come to after having spent a lot of time giving academic talks and talking about them and studying them is you want to try to move towards, you know, being like joking with a friend or talking to your dad or a coach and bring some of that fun stuff into it. You have to be careful because nowadays everybody gets offended at all kinds of things, you know? Um, and so, you know, it's like, you'd be surprised. A little thing that I might think is nothing. Somebody else might find that offensive, you know? Like one time I told, um, I, I told the joke that, you know, a lot of patients, they got leaky gut and now they're doing fecal transplants for those routinely, okay? And I'm like, well, if a wife has, leaky gut she should maybe just kiss her husband's butt okay and it's just a stupid joke okay but somebody go oh that joke is patriarchal oh and i'm like no it's just a stupid joke okay the point is instead of a fecal transplant what i would do is eat a vegan diet all right eating a vegan diet uh will fix the problem because then you get the fiber and that gives your good gut bacteria the ability to make short chain fatty acids and those will maintain your tight junctions so you don't have leaky gut okay all right. And, um, you know, the important thing is learning. OK, you can play around with the, the situation a little bit to make it memorable, to come up with a metaphor that's memorable. Um, when you talk to a friend, it's kind of like infotainment. You're trying to entertain each other and share useful information. So you got to figure out where to draw the line. It takes a little bit of social judgment. But the point I'm saying is academic talks would be a lot better if you talked in this way. And that's what the great speakers do, because I've seen some great genius speakers in academics and medicine in my time. And they're a lot more playful, like my dad or my coaches were, versus most of the, a lot of the people who are big name, you know, chief of department at some fancy place. A lot of times they're kind of like phonies and frauds. I say this because, you know, I've been in some pretty fancy places, Stanford, Harvard, et cetera, some other pretty fancy places. And a lot of the big name academics, they're really kind of phonies. They got their name on a whole bunch of papers because they were in charge of a bunch of people that worked in their area. And so they could say they have 100, 200, 300, 400 papers. But you talk to them, there's no ideas. They have nothing interesting or original to say. And the way you can kind of rise in the academic ladder a lot of times is to play it safe. You always stick with the, the playbook and you never do anything original. And you'll keep rising in those things. Have a friend that will promote you. But you'll never do any good, useful, or creative work. Um, okay, another thing. I got this idea from Bill McGowan in his book, Pitch Perfect. He said, when you're listening, like you're not just speaking, you're listening to the other person you know, you should be enthusiastic. If you really want to be there and you really want to share time with that person and interact with them, you should be enthusiastic. And he says, a real smile, like, you know, it involves your eyes too. Versus he says, the phony smile, he calls it the BRF. He calls it the bitchy resting face. If all you care about is just your turn to talk, you might just end up with a BRF, bitchy, bitchy resting face, rather than a BFF, a best friend face. So he says, be aware of that. You'll notice that when you see interviewers, okay? All right, uh, communication levels. Here's some communication theory stuff, pretty basic stuff, but it builds. You start out with a conduit metaphor. Shannon, Claude Shannon, he was a guy who figured out what's called the basics of information theory. And he was talking about sending a message over a telephone line a long distance. And he's an engineer, and what he wanted to do was reduce noise. And that'll enable the message to be more understandable at the other end. So likewise, keeping the, medicine, the message simple 
is the sort of the equivalent concept of reducing noise. And that's the simplest form of communication, like sending a, a telegram. And then the next message here, level of communication we'll talk about is strangers talking to each other. When you talk to somebody who you don't know, you want to keep everything predictable. Like let's say you're buying something at a store or at a restaurant. Hi, yes, I would like that. Thank you. Okay, that's transactional, transactional conversation with uncertainty reduction. You want to keep everything cool and simple for that person. And you don't want to complicate or confuse the matter at all. The next step up is talking, let's say, like with a coworker who you don't know too well, but you have some established common ground. And then you end up in what are called Grice's maximums, uh, maxims of cooperative conversation, you know, between peers, let's say. You want to, you know, you kind of have it agreed. It's unstated, but it's agreed. We're going to tell each other the truth. We're going to stick to the subject, keep it relevant. We're going to be clear. We're going to keep it brief. All right. And that's communicating with somebody like an associate trying to get a task done. Okay, but talking to a friend is a higher level. With a friend, you want to have fun. You want to share some useful information, but you want to joke a little bit. You're kind of playful. You can move from one topic to another. You're not worried about uncertainty reduction. You know you trust each other. You like talking to each other, and you can be playful, gregarious, extroverted. And what I'm also saying on my previous slide, what I'm getting at is I think that's how you should give a talk. Just assume you're talking to intelligent friends. And yeah, some of them aren't going to get it. Some of them you're going to be going too fast for. Some of them are going to think you're a jerk. There's nothing you can do about that. And I've learned too over life. Some people just aren't going to like you no matter what. So be nice, but don't, don't try to change them. They're not going to change. Just be your best self, okay? And that tends to work. The majority of people who are there because they really want to learn and get something out of it, they're going to give you the benefit of the doubt. So you can talk to them like a friend and that'll allow you to quickly get to the point and make it better for everybody. Okay, Aristotle described a logical con conversation between two peers, let's say two men of Athens, two aristocrats, as a rational world paradigm. Whoever can describe the subject in the most convincing, logical way should win the argument, okay? Because they've got superior logic for that subject. But other guys came along and studied rhetoric like Kenneth Burke and Kayim Perlman, and they said, hold on a sec, in the real world, it's not so much like that because a lot of audiences are different. And what Aristotle called an absolute truth is really when there's a situation of shared values amongst uh, persons with a lot in common, aristocratic men of Athens, let's say. So what they said is a speaker must find common ground that he can share with the audience in order to communicate effectively with them about that subject. Okay, so that's taking rhetoric to this new level. Okay, but then another guy came along, Walter Fisher, and he calls this the narrative paradigm. So Aristotle was the rational world paradigm. Uh, you can maybe call this the common ground paradigm, and this is the narrative paradigm. And so Walter Fisher says, logic's magic, you know, that's not what decides a lot of arguments. He says, what decides a lot of arguments is who's got the most compelling emotion to go with their story. Because people are very heavily persuaded by emotions. Who can tell a good story? And that's called the narrative paradigm. And certainly in a family, whoever can stir up the most emotion for their subject, you know, is a lot of times going to win an argument. All right. So anyways, rational world paradigm. So the point of all this is Know when you're dealing with a rational paradigm, try to establish common ground, be aware of the narrative component. Like Zig Ziglar said, logic might get somebody to understand or theoretically agree with you, but emotion is what will get them to potentially change their behavior. And in the back of it all, have a higher purpose of good, which will enable you to sort of make the whole thing kind of beautiful, like a work of art. All right. Um, communication levels. I won't go into this too much, but Carl Rogers had some good things to say. He was a psychologist. He had some good things to say about having unconditional positive regard for his client or patient. And by giving the patient the benefit of the doubt and then allowing them to just ramble on a little bit, like, like with a friend, 
he would get to where he had a comfortable, you know, psychologist patient relationship and he could really have effective conversations with him. And I think he was kind of brilliant in that way. I'll give Carl Rogers credit for that. And one of the things I love of his quote was he says, a good conversation is the ultimate in subjectivity. It's an individual thing between you and that person. And that's funny because anything you read in conventional medicine, conventional medicine is always trying to standardize everything. Conventional medicine wants its healthcare provider to be a widget. And this widget interacts with this widget. And if this widget doesn't show up, this other widget can replace them, that everything is interchangeable and scientific like B.F. Skinner. But in the real world, the truth is it's not really like that, but they try to pretend it is. Okay. Uh, so Carl Rogers is putting the person at ease because the person has to relax to get themselves into a parasympathetic, you know, autonomic nervous system phase, a relaxed feeling of safety and comfort in order to have a good conversation. If they're stressed out and untrusting and whatnot, then they're in the fight or flight sympathetic autonomic nervous system. Their guard is up and it's going to be hard to have a good conversation. OK, a lot of times common ground is things you have in common, like attracts like. You have to be authentic to build trust. So those are things to progress towards having effective conversation. And now moving to another higher level of conversation uh, theory is the Altman and Taylor theory of social penetration. And that's where, as you're building trust, he calls it like peeling an onion, is you sort of reveal different things that might be a little bit private, maybe even a little embarrassing that you've had of past experiences. And you'll notice you often see that, you know, in discussing a subject. Well, yeah, I was doing that type of procedure. And I had one complication on that same thing. And I probably should have used, you know, the seven French device instead of the five French device. And next time I'll use a five French, I need a glide cap. So you say, and those conversations, let's say between two physicians doing a procedure, that's where you get the best information. People say, you have to go by the studies. Don't trust anecdotal information, but that's completely untrue. That anecdote where you're talking to another person who's been in that situation, a friend who wants to help you is much more valuable than any study. Okay. You look at both. All right. But reciprocating self-discovers, peeling the onion. And it's a little bit like the Lewis Carroll quote. If you believe in me, I'll believe in you. And you share that like in a romantic relationship. Yes. When I was a child, you know, I also, you know, had to get shipped off to a boarding school and was lonely for a couple of years. Okay. Yeah, me too. You got all that in common. Okay. Uh, a great speaker in medical topics is somebody who tells you the truth about their screw-ups. You know, we had complications when we used to do this. So now we don't do that anymore. Okay. That's valuable information for taking care of patients. All right. And somebody who they'll, they'll, they'll tell you the truth. You know, like I say, you're talking about nutrition and health. Yes, I screwed up. I couldn't lose the weight for four years because I did this and it was embarrassing. And that's what I know. But the problem is when you admit your problems, you run the risk of being harshly judged by the audience, okay? Well, you screw, you had a complication, then you're not a good surgeon. So a lot of surgeons, they won't admit they ever had a complication, but the audience doesn't get any benefit from hearing their talk, doesn't learn how to avoid that complication because the doctor giving the lecture won't admit that they had it. Uh, so you have to kind of tell the truth. But paradoxically, what I'm saying here, I'm going to come to a big statement here, is that an older doctor, a lot of times, is more confident. They'll tell you, yeah, when I did that operation, I had a complication at first because I didn't know I had to do this. And then everybody's like, oh, we better do that so we don't have that complication versus a young guy is trying to get promoted, trying to please their, their higher ranking superiors in the in the hierarchy. So they just want to play by They don't want to admit any problems because they want to get promoted to the next level, pass to the next level. So they're going to be a chicken, chicken shit. Okay. Versus the old guy who's about to retire. He doesn't care. Okay. You know, 50 years ago, I should have done this. All right. So what I'm saying is paradoxically, if the speaker's goal is to help the audience, they're going to be more open. They're going to make themselves more vulnerable. They're going to tell the truth about stuff that's a little bit embarrassing potentially to say versus a young guy just trying to climb the ladder and who doesn't even know as much to begin with. They're going to play it safe. But you'll see a lot of university mediocrities that will give a talk. And you're like, that guy didn't say a single thing I didn't know as a junior resident. 
what a crappy talk, waste of my time. So in order to give good talks, you have to take risk. If you play it safe, your talk stinks. Okay. So that's what I'm saying is you have to figure out how to do that. But if you want to be really good, the great ones, they talk that way, you know, um, the sage on the stage. I know some really great docs when I was younger, man, and they would put it out there. Okay. And they would say things that were pretty harsh. Modern world is sort of a little bit wimped down and, you know, they can't even handle some of the things these guys used to say, but man, they would say stuff and it was help. I learned a lot from those old guys. Okay. Um, like a typical thing that would be a good lecture to say, well, we got burned on this. We thought this was just arthritis, but it turned out to be an infection. Nowadays we get a follow-up in, you know, about 10 days and, you know, we've been pretty accurate with that approach. All right. All right. Now here's a great quote I like by Arthur Schopenhauer. He's a great German philosopher of the late 1700s, early 1800s. And he said, um, the best books are usually written by devoted amateurs and not by prestigious professors who are usually conventional and focused on money. He says, excellence can only be attained where the work has been produced for its own sake alone. The truth is that the hobbyist treats his subjects as an end, whereas the professional treats it merely as a means. The hobbyist is really earnest about the matter because he likes it and pursues it con amore. It is these hobbyists and not the hirelings, the professional hirelings that have always done the greatest work. And that is true. When you read about nutrition, if you read some university textbook, it's always mediocre. There's no exceptions that I'm aware of. Whereas you read some guy writes a book because he's passionate and he, and he's, and he knows the subject and he loves it and he studied it for years. It's great. Okay. What I'm trying to say is you don't see great books on nutrition coming out of the Ivy League, okay? It comes from McDougal, you know, this crazy Irish guy who's getting no referrals for his patients because he knows he's bright, okay? Or T. Colin Campbell or some of these other guys, okay? They're doing big work because they're sort of individuals who are convinced they're right and they want to prove it to the world. And that generates good work, okay? Versus some university guy playing and say, Mediterranean diet, okay, fine. Mediterranean diet is good, blah, blah, blah. Okay, next, you know, get a publication on the resume that can give a rat's tail about the quality of the information. Okay. Uh, and I'll also say having a sense of it being inspired and creative and individualistic makes things better. And like, I love the cathedral architecture because it's a free creative enterprise. Um, and it's not enough to be free. You also have to be inspired. Like one of the things I'm going to talk a little bit about here now in terms of being a creative producer of things is you have to have a vision of what is good, what is right, what is beautiful to really do top quality work in a lot of areas. And you have to, again, in health and nutrition, you have to care about the patient. The most important minority is the individual, because if you care about that, everything will be right. Versus if you're like, well, you know, I'm getting funded by so-and-so and we want to get published in this journal and I have to do this for who's funding me and I have to do this for the journal, then it's not going to be very useful, probably, that research uh, for the individual. Here's uh, Goethe. Goethe said a couple of things. The first quote up here by Goethe only talk about things that truly interest you because to learn a topic, a man, well, he actually said to the last part, to learn a complex topic, a topic, a man must love it. And then he says down here, all professional men are handicapped by not being allowed to ignore things that are useless. And that is true. I learned that. You know, like when I was a young guy, I thought, oh my gosh, these Ivy League textbooks on pathophysiology are great. They're the epitome, the Bible. So now that I'm older and I know a lot, the books all stink. They all, they're bad on almost every single subject. Coronary artery disease, hypertension, diabetes, cancer, autoimmune disease. They're completely out of date and wrong on numerous things. And they don't include the most important stuff and the most important people in the field. Okay. So I've changed now that I'm older and I know the subject. Okay. And these are written by professionals at Ivy League institutions or Ivy League equivalent institutions. And they're all, they always stink. Okay. Um, all the good stuff comes from these 
individuals who just write about what they know. These old guys, you know, Richard Moore writing about hypertension after studying it for 50 years. All right. Um, let's see. What else? Uh, talk like you're talking to an intelligent friend. Okay. Here's a great quote by Beethoven. An artist is someone who has learned to trust himself. And now here's what I meant by, if you don't have a good view of aesthetics, you end up with crap. So you got a bunch of illiterate peasants who made beautiful cathedrals back in the, you know, around 1400. And now you got all these modern people with PhDs in engineering and they make a crappy looking building that looks like a bunch of animal cages. And in front of it, you've got a statue that looks like a turf. Okay, we're going backwards on a lot of things. This is crap, okay? No pun intended, that's crap, all right? That shouldn't be a statue in front of a building. That's, you know, offensive, okay? Now, the idea of a hero in Western culture has changed over the years. The classic hero, let's say, in the, you know, the idiot in the oddity, the Iliad in the Odyssey is like Achilles mourning the death of Patroclus, okay? And then the, the warrior hero, Achilles, revenges Patroclus and parades around in front of Troy, okay? That's sort of the classic old hero, and then the new hero that came after that was more intellectual. This is Odysseus from the Odyssey as he's working his way back to Ithaca from Troy. And he's a new type of hero compared to Achilles. He's more intelligent. He's more clever. He's very brave. But he's also a bit dishonest, sneaky, and he certainly isn't scholarly in any way. But he's a new type of hero, more intellectual than the old Achilles type of hero. And there's other things that came up. This was more of the Roman type of hero, of Aeneas, the dutiful hero, the man who does his duty, Pius Aeneas. He rescues his father, Anchises, carries him out of burning Troy, and then he goes on to found Rome, and he has to leave his love, Dido, and Carthage because to found Rome is his, his priority. So that's the noble hero, the dutiful hero, all right? And we're starting to move with the ancient Greeks into more of uh, a modern concept of an intellectual hero. Like I love Thucydides when he wrote the book, The History of the Peloponnesian War. He said, my history has not been composed. Um, my history has been composed to be an everlasting possession, not a showpiece of the hour. This book was written not for the applause of the moment, but to be a gift to mankind for all time. This, by the way, is Pericles Oration, which is in the book, The Peloponnesian by Thucydides. But this idea of making a great intellectual accomplishment. This is the Acropolis, the big hill in Athens with the magnificent buildings. Okay, and then... Another step upwards in terms of intellectual heroes was Socrates. And Socrates has been called the saint of philosophy. And Plato was pissed off because after the loss of Athens to Sparta, the new rulers in Athens actually ended up condemning Socrates to die. And here is the dejected Plato sitting at the foot of the bed as Socrates goes to drink the hemlock. But he wrote a tremendous amount, let's say, in his Republic about Socrates. And Plato was trying to bring forth the idea of a new type of hero to Athens, not just the old fighter guys like Achilles and Odysseus, but this intellectual Socrates, um, philosophic hero, okay? Now here's some quotes by, by Socrates. Go wherever the facts lead. The purpose of philosophy is to determine how we ought to live. In order to decide how to live well, we need to learn what is good for us and what is bad for us. Yes, what's a healthy diet, et cetera. Okay, so anyways, this is Moving up, and so this is a beautiful painting by Jacques-Louis David. It's magnificent of Socrates there and Plato and their friends, okay? Okay, here's just one funny picture of Plato. Plato had defined a human as a uh, featherless biped. So Diogenes said, well, here's Plato's idea of a man. He plucked a chicken, okay? Featherless biped, all right? And Nietzsche had said that Christianity is nothing but Platonism for the masses, okay? And so now I'm, I'm moving to some different steps of philosophy here. Here's, and these are also the great speakers. So Cicero was the greatest orator in Rome. He was magnificent. 
he rose from relative poverty to be the ruler of all Rome. And he's the great intellectual hero of Roman origin. He said a lot of good things. Qui bono means who benefits. So if you want to understand a situation where the money's coming, say who benefits from that money? And a lot of times that helps you figure out what happened. Okay. An order has three functions to teach, to please, to move. Emotion is the most important thing because most humans are fundamentally ruled by their emotions in the opinion of Cicero. He did all kinds of innovative things. Uh, he was also a lawyer and uh, his persuasive uh, methods were great. I read a couple of books about him. He's fantastic. Okay, rhyme is a magnet for the ear. Whatever's the most important part of your presentation, put it into a rhyme. Okay, repetition of key points gets the audience to believe it. Whatever it is, the more you repeat it, the more they believe it. And unfortunately, that's true in popular society. Cicero emphasized the importance of reading history. He said, to not know what happened before you were born is to forever remain a child. That's why you have to study history if you want to be intelligent. Because modern society, things just repeat themselves. They repeat themselves in a newer context with more, with more technology, but it's the same old themes. They, they happen again. Human behavior hasn't changed much, okay? And then Jesu Christu was a different type of hero. He brought more in. He wasn't that intellectual. He wasn't that, you know, he was more a hero of love and forgiveness. And that was a great thing, and I think it's a great thing for the world because it's better when people get along and he emphasized forgiveness. If you end up with, you know, sort of an old view of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, you know, like Gandhi had said, everybody ends up without an eye or a tooth, you know, with Hazel Christo, he said, look, you can forgive each other and get along. And, and uh, I actually wrote a vegan version of his Beatitudes. Blessed are they who are fat in belly for they will be thin again. Blessed are they who are poor in antioxidants for they will improve a lot. Blessed are they who have high blood viscosity, for they will get laminar flow. Blessed are they who are hyperinsulinemic, for they can improve response. And blessed are they who want to learn, for they can be taught. A new commandment I have given unto you, that you should love one another as I have loved you. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another, and by this all people will know that you are my disciples. So that's John chapter 13, verse 34 to 35. So it's a way that people can get along, and, and the world certainly needs that, okay? And... What I'm doing here is I'm going through some famous speeches to give you examples of what I think is great oratory, great public speaking for the context of whatever it's in. So here's St. Paul preaching in Athens at the Areopagus and the Greeks a lot of them. And this is a painting by Raphael in 1515. And this is from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, then I am nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but it does rejoice with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. For we know now in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. What I know now in part, then I shall know fully. So abide these three, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of all these is love. First Corinthians. Okay, so the reason I went through that is I actually believe that is relevant to medicine and health. And what I'm trying to say is you have to love the individual person. You have to respect the individual person. That's why I think it's so important, the biblical concept in the beginning of Genesis. Man is created in the image of God, therefore part divine, therefore entitled to freedom, to respect, to his own natural rights. Because if you don't have that, 
you tend to go into just a business mindset. How can we make the most money out of a situation? And I think it's a loss of love for the individual, individual patient as an individual that's led to healthcare being pushed so far in the direction of money, 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 money. And when it goes in that direction, the patient loses out. And as a matter of fact, it's partly why I wore this tie because these are the three colors on this tie. The white is the color of faith. The green is the color of hope. And the red is the color of love. Sometimes the word charity or agape, you know, sort of a universal generalized love. We're not talking about romantic love. We're just talking about kindness, love. And it actually incorporates components of all the different types of love. But you see what I'm saying is I think I think you need that to do the best quality work in art and science. So I'm actually a big believer that that's important. Here's a great painting by Sandro Botticelli, the great artist. I think the greatest artist, well, him and Rogier van der Weyden, I think are the two of my favorite artists from the 1400s. And this painting is called The Mystic Nativity. And you notice the same colors again, the white color of the angels, the green color of the angel, you know, for hope, the white color for faith, and the red color for love, all right? And this is a way people can get along and everybody can do things right. I like they're celebrating the family, celebrating the, you know, this is a love of the individual. And I think you can be careful to move away from this direction. If you put everything into the mind of whoever is the ruler has total power, they'll often abuse that, you know, absolute power uh, um, tends to do things that are not so nice. So this was Nero in Rome and he burned Rome down in a bunch of areas because he wanted land that he could use for his own uh property plans and then he would burn uh, these christians as torches so what i'm saying is i go into this because if you take love out of the picture and you forget individual rights you end up with things like that now here's a beautiful painting by thomas cole hudson river school in the 1830s course of empire and this is the height of the empire and i show you this he's the same one who made those, those magnificent paintings called the voyage of life a lot of people myself included consider him the greatest story painter ever in the history of the world Okay, look how magnificent this is. And you can say, well, gee, that represents perhaps ancient Rome at its high point, perhaps some of our modern civilizations at their high points. Okay. And there's also something called the cycle of civilizations by um, Giambattista Vico, the Vico concept of cyclical civilizations. And this is the course of downfall in an empire. So this is like the fall of Rome when they were stuck in chaos and they had all this problem. Why did Rome fail? Okay, why did Rome fall? You know, it lasted a thousand years, 500 years for the Republic and then another 500 for the Empire, so to speak. Too many barbarian invaders, lead in the plumbing, lowering IQs, that was part of it. Loss of morality, weakening the people. Uh, Edward Gibbons, this Englishman here, and you have to remember the English were Protestants, uh, the early Christians were Catholics, that the Protestants looked down on the Catholics. So he said, ah, it's because the Catholic Christianity made the Romans weak, and therefore they were easy to conquer. They were stronger, like in the Republic when they had the paganism. And he wrote an entire book on this, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. So that's his theory. Okay, this is him in a portrait by Joshua Reynolds. Okay, and there's some controversy about over that in some of the debates. And one of the reasons why I'm still a big believer in religion, even though, yes, religion's done tons of stupid things, tons of mistakes, tons of problems, tons of problems still today and all that, is I see so many great writers and performers who had totally energized them to just unbelievable levels. Michelangelo, he said, I saw the angel in the marble. I sculpted until I set him free. I put all my hope in God and do the best I can for him. Bach, on every single composition, the greatest composer ever lived. He said, all my work is for the glory of God. And Isaac Newton, the same thing. He spent more time doing studying the Bible and stuff than he did doing his science. And he's probably the greatest scientist who ever lived. Okay. Uh, invented calculus. Okay. Uh, anyways, I show you this because I always wanted to figure out how could I drive myself to achieve a higher? I don't even think I was that smart. 
when I was in high school, I wasn't even an honor student. I never took an honors class, okay? But I, what I'm trying to say is I think a tremendous component of individual performance, of individual intellectual ability and performance, it comes from personality. So if you've got role models that inspire you, if you've got teachers, mentors, things to look to, that builds you up, okay? And I just want to show you some of the, all this incredible art and literature inspired by religion. It's it's amazing, okay? Charles Dick, I think that's actually the greatest novel ever written. Les Miserables is probably second, Brothers Karamazov third, and maybe Atlas Shrugged fourth, okay? Ayn Rand is such a genius, it's not even funny. She wrote a magnificent book. This book called The Romantic Manifesto is a summary of her understanding of literature and art, okay? And all the magnificent buildings. Look how magnificent these buildings are. That is magnificent. That is you know, incredible. This is Chartres Cathedral in France. Okay. And here's the, the stone glass, the stained glass windows. Here's the carvings on the doorway. There's a bunch of doorways. You know, there's three in the front like this. They're magnificent. They're just beautiful. All this beautiful music's all inspired by this. That's why I would never turn my back on it. You say, oh, there's so many stupid people in religion and all this. Yeah, but they'd be worse if they didn't have the religion. And so what am I saying is once you lose religion, once you lose respect for the individual, you end up with this. This is in Rotterdam, Netherlands, a museum of modern art. And these are just sculptures of feces. So they think that that's art. I consider that an insult. And I think people should say, that's not art, that's crap. Okay. And it actually is. That's in a museum. And so if you don't have some type of guiding standard, you end up with this type of stuff. And it's ridiculous. Okay. Look at this. This was done in 1435, Rogier van der He's like him and Botticelli are my favorite uh, painters from the 1400s. This is magnificent. And uh, the symbol of the picture, not only you know, Hazel Christie's body, this was funded by the Archer's Guild. His body is like, like an archer. You can see like they're pulling back the string, if you will, and that's the bow and that, you know, Mary's position, it echoes his. It's magnificent. And all this, all, all this other symbolism in there. This was done in 1435. It's incredible, the level of painting. It's amongst the greatest paintings ever made in the history of the world. That's what I'm trying to say is being inspired to paint this and also having a competition generated this great art. And I want to be a creative artist in my own way, producing videos and literature books. So if you want to produce high quality art, you need things to inspire you. Look how magnificent this work is. Edmund Layton. These were, and Ayn Rand has said this, the greatest artistic uh, epochs in the history of the world, in her opinion, were the ancient Greeks, then the Renaissance in Italy, and then the 1800s. And I'm telling you, if you look at the 1800s, and Ayn Rand did an extensive study, they're magnificent. There's so much incredible stuff. She said it was a combination of capitalism, bringing money into the world so there were more uh, funding for the arts simultaneously with more freedom. It was a magnificent time for art. If you look at all these paintings, I, I've gone through many, many thousands of paintings. The 1800s are just incredible. And this was sort of the chivalry types of painting, you know, all the King Arthur stuff. And it's magnificent, okay? There's one after another. There's, there's, there's a ton of great paintings on this. And you just see it's it's bold, it's noble, it's honorable, it's pro-family, it's pro-freedom. It, it, there's just so many good things about it. It's beautiful, okay? And then, you know, you say, well, what about, you know, is it tolerant? Yeah, like a woman, she could say, you know what? I don't want to be married, having kids. I want to take care of the poor. I want to be a nun or whatever. This lady came from a wealthy family. She just devoted herself to helping to feed the poor. They made her a saint, Okay. And, you know, it's elegant, it's respectful, it's beautiful, okay? There's there's a lot of this, what I'm trying to say. It's a worldview that everybody's welcome, okay? And I'll give a speech here too. I don't know how I'm doing for time. Um, 
and I'm kind of going off about famous speeches here. So I'm going to give another famous speech here. And I don't know if people are even going to like this or not, but I'll just share it with you so you can see it. Okay, this is the idea of, this is um, Pascal. He was a great computer mathematic inventor guy, but then he also became interested in philosophy and in religion. And he came to this, what he called Pascal's wager, because he was always calculating betting odds. And he says, if you believe in God or you don't believe in God and God exists or does not exist, what are the trade-offs, the risks and the benefits? So let's say you believe and he does exist, potential for infinite gain. Let's say he does exist and you don't believe, potential for infinite loss. And if he doesn't exist, then it doesn't matter that much either way. So uh, Pascal had said, we know the truth not only by reason, but by the heart. Love and force are the two sources for all of our actions. Love causes voluntary actions. Force causes involuntary ones. Okay. And then he goes on to talk about making this wager. Should you bet on it or not? He says, there are three ways we see the truth. We can see it with the outer eye of the body, the inner eye of the mind from thinking, or the inner eye of the heart, the soul from feeling. And the heart has reasons that reason knows not. What should we want to be true? What if there was a bet with the possibility of infinite gain with no risk of loss? What if there was another bet with the possibility of infinite loss and no hope of gain? That would be the most interesting wager you could have. That is the reality of religion. God either exists or God does not exist. If you wager your life that God does not exist and he does, then you lose everything. If you wager your life that God does exist and he doesn't, you lose nothing. If you wager your life that God does exist and he does, then you gain everything. If there is one wager you should want to be able to make, it is on God. You must wager. You are already embarked. What will you choose? This is not a proof of God, but it is an incitement to want to know. But knowledge of God without knowledge of Christ is insufficient because the world still would make no sense to us. Imagine that God just created the world, just as Descartes described. So what? There is still the misery of man, the contradictions, the absurdities of life, incomprehensible to us. That the world had a creator? Fine. But so what? What does it resolve? What does it answer for you? Without the knowledge of Christ, knowledge of God is barren, empty, philosophical doctrine about a first cause, irrelevant and unimportant to life. But faith and Christian revelation change everything. There are arguments, but they won't convince you because no one does believe in Christ through the mind. One believes in Christ through the heart. There were miracles. There were prophecies fulfilled, but those will not tempt you at all. Because the mind rejects what's good and the will rejects what's good. But if one is touched in one's heart by grace, the heart has its reasons which reason knows not. And the world finds it absurd that a Christian believes by faith and by grace. But here's what happens. Have you ever looked at a double perspective picture? And you look at it one way and then you look at it another and it looks like one thing. But once you change your perspective on it, you see it from a different angle and you realize it's a picture of something else. That is what Christian faith accomplishes. When you understand the full, you understand the absurdity, the misery, the dualism of human life, you understand how we are a combination of the exalted and the debased. When you understand the sacrifice, the crucifixion, the blood, the grace of Christ, then that there is a God and that this is his world merited by love that surpasses all understanding, it makes sense of that world that formerly was incomprehensible. With faith, our contradictions and unhappiness, our greatness and depravity, they all fall into place. Not physics, not barometrics, not philosophy. None of these things are the goal of life. Inner peace and salvation are the goals of life. And those are the miracles of grace, the heart, and Christian faith. Blaise Pascal.
from the 1600s. So anyways, that's an example of a famous speech. Okay, now here's another famous speech. This is a famous speech, because the reason I'm doing this, I'm, I'm talking about great speeches that had tremendous emotional drama in history. Okay, and this is like one of the, the most famous speaker of the founding fathers, and this was Patrick Henry, and here he is speaking in 1775. He gave similar speeches from 1765 onwards. He said, this is his great speech about freedom. I know no way of judging the future, but by the past. It is natural for a man to indulge in illusions of hope. We are apt to shut our eyes against the painful truth and listen to the song of that siren till she transforms us into beasts. Are we disposed to be of the number who having eyes see not, who having ears hear not? For my part, whatever anguish of spirit it may cost, I am willing to know the whole truth, to know the worst and to provide for it. Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Patrick Henry, 1775. So he was an incredible speaker, <laughs> as that can show. Okay, now of these founding fathers, guys, this is Thomas Jefferson, and Thomas Jefferson was a great genius. If you study his life, you'll be amazed at how brilliant he was. And Ben Franklin was of the same caliber. Both of these guys were extraordinarily bright. Adams was a bright guy too. But Jefferson and, and Franklin, it's amazing, you know, to have our country founded by such incredible geniuses. And the Declaration of Independence, you know, life, liberty, and the, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, that's a pretty good founding document because other countries, they don't have this freedom of speech like the United States has. It's a great thing that we should cherish. Okay, now I'm going to take you to another great famous speech. And it's by this guy, John Ruskin. Okay, here he is painted by John Everett Millay, who's one of the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood painters. That was a group of painters who wanted to go back to a style of painting from before Raphael. This is the Stanza Signature, the Signature Room in the Vatican. And here is the School of Athens, magnificent painting. And here is Mount Parnassus, the mountain of poetry and art and literature. And what had happened was Ruskin was a wealthy aristocratic guy and he got to travel around and he was intensely emotionally offended by the fact that the Mount Parnassus of art and poetry was put at the same height as another painting in the Stanza signature. There's four walls. I don't have the, the Disputa and the religious sacraments painting there. And what John Ruskin had felt, he was sort of an old Bible thumping Puritan Scottish Calvinist religious guy. And he felt that Raphael had insulted religion by putting the painting of it at the same height as the painting of art and poetry. And in his opinion, Raphael had magnificent technique and skill as a painter, but he lacked the emotional correctness of a true Christian in Ruskin's opinion. And Ruskin was a hothead, but he did some really good things. And he supported the pre-Raphaelite painters who felt they wanted to paint in a more true emotional way, a more uh, nature accurate way. So anyways, I'll just share with you this painting by Ruskin because it's a magnificent painting. It's the, it's the greatest uh, speech ever in the history of our criticism. Here's what Ruskin said in 1853. There have been three ages in painting, the classical period ending with the fall of Rome, the medieval period extending to Raphael, following Raphael is the modern era. Classicism art was pagan. Medieval art was Christian. Modern art denies Christ. All ancient art was religious. All modern art is profane. The ancient art was moral. The modern art is immoral. 
In medieval art, truth is first and beauty second. In modern art, beauty is first and truth second. All ancient and medieval art was religious. All modern art is profane. This distinction is as firm as light and darkness. He who offers God a second place offers him no place. Raphael, on one Vatican wall, wrote that the kingdom of theology is presided over Christ. And on the other wall, he wrote that the kingdom of poetry was presided over by Apollo. And from that spot and that hour, the intellect and the art of Italy date their degradation. Raphael elevated the creations of fancy to the same rank as the objects of faith on the other. The doom of the arts of Europe went forth from that chamber. The medieval principles led up to Raphael and the modern principles lead down from him. Just as classical art was great in building to its gods and medieval art was great in building to its god, modern art is not great because it builds to no god <laughs> okay ruskin he is a hothead but he was also a genius he's crazy too but he is, is a great genius all right so anyways he did a lot of good things too in his actual life winston churchill this speech is a little bit similar to um you know uh patrick henry and it, it's great everybody kind of knows this one so i'll skip this one but everybody pretty much knows that one all right, so now I'm going to talk about Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand is fascinating. And again, lots of people who don't know her, oh, she's a bitch, this and that. Let me tell you something. When you study her, I think she's the smartest woman who ever lived. She's absolutely a towering genius. And I read a bunch of her books, and I'm so impressed by them. Now, I'll just share with you a recent lecture she gave that I thought was magnificent. You can see her lectures, by the way, if you go to the Ayn Rand Institute. All these lectures are free. They're magnificent, Okay. You go to some humanities program in a college and they're going to teach you all kinds of nonsense. It's not even true. You go listen to Ayn Rand. She studied the history of philosophy and literature backwards and forwards. And she has amazingly insightful commentary about it. So here's a couple of things by Ayn Rand. She says, don't ever give up what you want to be. It's worth it to pursue it. You should try to live up to the most exalted vision of yourself. And basically a little bit of background real quick on her, on her life. She grew up in, in Russia, which, and her father was a wealthy, successful man. He owned a pharmacy and they had a great home life and childhood and family. And then it was destroyed by the communists in Russia and they fled. And she traveled a little bit before she got to the United States. And so here's this poor girl who saw, you know, all these people starving and dying in Russia. And then she comes to New York City and she's like, oh, my God, there's all these beautiful buildings, these skyscrapers, magnificent uh, other buildings. And she was just in awe. She's like, wow, America the greatest country in the world. And then she read all about the founding fathers and freedom and free speech. And then she studied all the philosophy and history. And she's like, oh my God. And the art was so beautiful and inspiring to you. You know, she went from a childhood where everything was bleakness and sad to seeing what could be. And she said, so here's Ayn Rang speaking. Imagine a person growing up in a bleak, brutal, primitive society, seeing nothing around themselves day after day, except struggling to survive with no hope. Imagine then that a traveling movie theater comes by and it shows them a movie of New York City with all its great buildings and achievements and the skyscrapers and everything else. She says, that is the meaning of art. That is what art can do. Excuse me. Art is the concretization of metaphysics. Art is the fuel to the soul. 
art is a selective recreation of reality according to the artist's values. And you can see in that quote, she's embodying the idea of Aristotle. The literature is more important than history because it shows you a hope of what is possible. Okay. Um, and that inspires a person that they can become more than what they initially thought they could be. Ayn Rand continues, the three great ages of art and literature were the ancient Greeks, the Renaissance, and the 1800s. Victor Hugo was the greatest novelist who ever lived. When reading his work, one feels as if they are entering a cathedral. Fyodor Dostoevsky is also one of the greatest novelists. To read his work is to walk into a chamber of horrors, but with a good, strong guide. Quo Vadis by Enric Sienkiewicz is the greatest technical novel of all time, but I don't agree with its glorification of Christianity. I found myself in disagreement with all existing philosophies, so I had to invent my own philosophy to show what the ideal man can be, what the ideal man ought to be. So that's Ayn Rand. And I'll tell you something funny. She loved uh, Aristotle more than all the other philosophers. She thought Immanuel Kant was the worst one. And then it seems to me that she thinks basically Jesus Christo was a bit of a wussy, okay? Allowing himself to be crucified, focusing too much on the afterlife instead of the here and now. And it seems to me she wanted a more masculine, in her view, male hero, more of an intellectual hero, more of a businessman type of achiever who was brave, who got the most out of his life on earth rather than focusing on the afterlife. And I laugh because Nietzsche also thought Jesus Christo was a little bit of a wussy in his opinion, Christians too, he saw, but he saw it a different way. He was more of a physical hero wanting, you know, back like Achilles rather than Ayn Rand was more of, you know, her great heroes of her books, you know. Um, so Nietzsche loved Renaissance art, but he did not like Christianity, even though to me, they obviously go together. I thought Christianity wimpy and hypocritical. He wrote, thus spake, thus, thus spoke Zarathustra, which he wanted to replace the Bible. Ayn Rand loved Christian literature. She, she, she goes on and on about all the great Christian authors, but she he thinks Christianity, she doesn't like it that much. And she thinks it's kind of controlling and wimpy. Her book, Atlas Shrugged, showed great men like Hank Reardon and John Gold. And that's a magnificent book. Okay, and here's what I also said, too. The creation of Adam, the idea of man creating the image of God, that's fundamental to having respect for the rights of an individual. Otherwise, the ruler is just the boss and they do whatever they want. If man's just a talking primate, he's got no rights. If man's just a talking primate, talking primates are behind bars, okay? Talking primate has no rights, no right to freedom, no right to property, no right to good food. So we want freedom of food. We want good food, okay? And so that's an important point to realize. If you don't have high respect for the individual, nobody's going to have a lot of rights. Now, here is something um, by Sam Kinison, perhaps the greatest comedian who ever lived. He has a routine called Jesus Was Never Married. I can tell you this is one of the funniest comedy routines I've ever heard in my life. I could read it, but I'm not going to read it. If you want, here's a transcript of it that I made. If you just go on YouTube, you'll find it in five seconds. Jesus was never married by Sam Kinison. It's very, very funny. And you'll see, in terms of being a great speaker, how he walks around, he changes his vocal tone, he speeds up, slows down, changes his pitch, has a pause, you know, pregnant pause for emphasis. It's great. It's magnificent. It's just, it's just a great routine. Okay, now I'm going to get into one last thing. I'm going to be I'm getting ready to end in here. I'm going to have a debate between Fyodor Dostoevsky and Friedrich Nietzsche. He was considered one of the greatest philosophers who ever lived. He's considered one of the greatest writers who ever lived, novelist type writer. And they have very opposing opinions on a lot of subjects. And I've taken their quotes and made them into a debate. 
Um, so in this corner, we have Friedrich Nietzsche, who calls himself the Antichrist. Nietzsche made it his mission to destroy Christianity. He thought it was too physically wimpy and hypocritical and critical and focused on the afterlife instead of the here and the now. He tried to replace Christianity in the Bible by writing Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Um, his autobiography was H.A. Homo, Behold the Man, uh, Pontius Pilate's quote. Nietzsche basically felt that he himself had replaced Christ and should be the ruler, <laughs> the new God of men. In a godless society, the ruler is a god. And the Roman emperors were as gods. In this other corner, we have Fyodor Dostoevsky, who lived from 1821 to 1881, the Russian Orthodox Christian. In 1860, in America, 10% of the population were slaves, but in Russia, it was 90% of the population as slaves or serfs. He saw Russia breaking apart culturally, and he feared the consequences of a godless society. Okay, his book, The Idiot, was about something like that, but I'm going to jump right to the debate. Okay, Nietzsche begins, he who has a why to live can bear any how. To live is to suffer. To survive is to find some meaning in the suffering. Dostoevsky, the mystery of human life goes beyond just staying alive. It seeks something to live for. Nietzsche, great intellects are skeptical. There are no facts, only interpretations. I cannot believe in a God who wants to be praised all the time. The strength of a person can be measured by how much truth he can tolerate, or more precisely, to what extent he needs to have it diluted softened, sweetened, muted, falsified. Where has God gone? I shall tell you, God is dead and we have killed him, you and I. What did we do when we unchanged the earth from the sun? Whither is it moving now? Has it not become colder? Is more and more night not coming on all the time? How shall we console ourselves? I have come too early. The event is still on its way. It has not yet reached the ears of men. Nietzsche. Okay, now Dostoevsky, if you were to destroy in mankind the belief in immortality, not only love, but every living force maintaining the life of the world would at once be dried up. Moreover, everything would be immoral. Nothing would be unlawful, not even cannibalism. Nietzsche, God is dead and you have killed him. Get over it. Dostoevsky, if there is no God, then everything is permitted, even cannibalism. Nietzsche, I philosophize with a hammer. Okay, now when it's in the blue here, that means the narrator is going to add in. If God is dead, then there is no such thing as morality. Darwin and Spencer proclaim survival of the fittest. Nietzsche, verily, I have often laughed at the weaklings who thought themselves good because they have no claws. Okay, and the narrator this time is Paul Johnson, the English historian. He says, man owes his humanity to the notion of God. And if this notion disappears from his thoughts and his vocabulary, then humanity would disappear too. Man without God is a doomed creature. The history of the 20th century proves this view, that as the vision of God fades, we first become more clever monkeys, and then we exterminate each other. Okay, Nietzsche takes over. Christianity is the snake that swallowed its own tail. Your churches are not churches. They are just tombs for a dead God. After coming in contact with a religious man, I always feel that I must wash my hands. There is not enough love and goodness in this world for us to give any of it away to imaginary beings. Dostoevsky. Even those who renounce Christianity and criticize it in their innermost being, they still try to follow the Christian ideal. No one has been able to create a higher ideal of a man and virtue and the ideal given by Christ. Nietzsche. The New Testament, it's too rococo. Upon reading the New Testament, one feels as if they are reading a Russian novel. Mystical explanations are thought to be deep, 
The truth is that they are not even shallow. A casual stroll through the lunatic asylum shows that faith does not prove anything. Dostoevsky, do miracles create faith or does faith create miracles? Nietzsche, Christianity is the religion of pity. When one gives up on Christian belief, then one thereby deprives oneself of the rights to Christian morality. Christianity is a religion of poor people and slaves, of illiterates. Why should a religion of inferior people control superior people? It is time to go beyond good and evil. I condemn Christianity. I am the Antichrist. Okay, some of the narrators now, Plato makes a comment. The best way to control the ignorant masses is with noble sounding lies. Another narrator, Will Durant, the philosophes don't need religion, but the average man wants it. Religion tells him that his life is meaningful. The atheism of the philosophers leads to despair for the average man. Rip Van Winkle comments, the philosophers aren't the only ones who don't like religion. Rulers don't like religion. Rulers don't like religion because it's too emotional. If the rabble starts thinking that their lives have meaning, they might want more freedom or property, or, and that could be expensive. Joseph Stalin makes a comment. The Communist Party cannot be neutral toward religion. The Communist Party stands for science, and all religion is opposed to science. Okay, and then there's another speaker here called Plant Man Prometheus. And Prometheus says, religion and freedom of speech are the power of the poor. And that's why religious rulers forbid religion and they censor speech. Rulers do not want the ignorant masses to expect forgiveness or to have any hope. Nikita Khrushchev, Russian ruler in the 1960s, as his comment, we have no use for the policy of the Gospels. If someone slaps you, you just turn the other cheek. We had shown that if anyone slapped our cheek, they would get their head kicked off. Plantman Prometheus, rulers want the masses to be subliterate laborers. They don't want them to be self-righteous, liberal arts, hyper-educated types. Rulers prefer Darwinian atheism. Talking apes do not have any rights. None. Alexander Solnitsyn, the great Russian writer, says, the reason all this happened, that Stalin killed 65 million Russians, is because the people had forgotten God. Charles Leibniz, he was the contemporary of Isaac Newton, said, there is only God or nothingness. T.S. Eliot, the writer from 1988 to 1965, English and American, he said, if you will not have God, and he is a jealous God, then you should pay your respects to Stalin. Plantman Prometheus. Rulers prefer the populace to be passive and dull like cows. And this works well because most people prefer to live like cows. Martin Luther comments, the ordinary person, especially in the villages, knows absolutely nothing. They live like simple cattle. Frederick Nietzsche laughs. Ha! Modern Luther, Martin Luther, he's the one who killed the Renaissance. Plantman Prometheus comments, Darwinian atheism makes the ruler become God. Darwinian atheism enables the ruler to do whatever they want, like eradicate unwanted ethnic groups, eugenics, polygamy, slavery, pedophilia, sadism, organ, organ harvesting from humans. Carl Jung speaks. In order to have free from sovereign restrictions, the ruler tries to cut the ground underneath the religions. Okay, Religions teach that there is another authority, one that is opposed to that of the world. Solzhenitsyn comments. The generations now coming out of Western schools are unable to distinguish good from bad. Even those words are unacceptable. This causes impaired thinking ability. 
Just as King Midas turned everything to gold, Stalin turned everything to mediocrity. Atheism was at the core of the entire Soviet system. Atheism is what makes it possible. To do evil, a human being must first believe that what they are doing is good. The ideology of atheism, that is what gives evil doing its long-sought justification and gives the evildoer the necessary steadfastness, steadfastness and determination. Carl Jung, the decisive question for man is, is he related to something infinite or not? Among my patients over 35, they all had a problem finding a religious outlook on life. Every one of them had fallen ill because he had lost what the other living religions of every age had given their followers. And none of them had really been healed who did not regain his religious outlook. Outlook, Religion is a basic human need. Dostoevsky, God and the devil are fighting for the hearts of men. Nietzsche, I will believe in your redeemer when Christians look more redeemed. Dostoevsky, what is the use of Christ's words unless we set a good example? We are responsible for everyone and I am more responsible than anyone else. Nietzsche, your God is dead and you killed him. Dostoevsky, if someone proved to me that Christ is outside the truth, then I should prefer to remain with Christ than with the truth. If you drive God from the earth, we will shelter him underground. Voltaire makes a comment. If God did not exist, we would have to invent him. I want my doctor and my tailor to believe in God so they don't rob me. And now the Grand Inquisitor enters. The Grand Inquisitor was from the Brothers Caramanza book, the 16th century Spanish Grand Inquisitor. And he says to Jesu Christu, why hast thou come to hinder us? For thou hast come to hinder us, and thou knowest that. But dost thou know what will be tomorrow? I know not who thou art, and care not to know whether it is thou or only a semblance of him. But tomorrow I shall condemn thee and burn thee at the stake as the worst of heretics. And the very people who today have kissed thy feet, tomorrow, at the faintest sign from me, they will rush to heap up the embers of thy fire. Knowest thou that? For 15 centuries we have wrestled with thy freedom, but now it is ended and over for good. Today men are more persuaded than ever that they have perfect freedom, yet they have brought their freedom to us and laid it humbly at our feet. Dost thou know that the ages will pass and humanity will proclaim by the lips of their sages that there is no sin, there is only hunger. And we alone shall feed them in thy name, declaring falsely that it is in thy name. And in the end, they will lay their freedom at our feet and say to us, make us your slaves, but feed us. Plant man Prometheus, smart people like freedom, grand inquisitor. By insisting on freedom of choice, you have limited salvation only to thousands of people. But what about the millions of people who can't handle freedom? You make a mockery of them. Why hast thou come to hinder us? We have corrected thy work and have founded it on mystery and authority. And men rejoice that they were once again led like sheep. We shall persuade them that they will only be free when they renounce their freedom and submit to us. Thou shalt see that obedient flock who had a sign from me will heap up the hot cinders about the pile on which I shall burn thee. And the silicone man now speaks. That is right. The average man does not care about freedom. The average man doesn't want the vegan diet. The average man doesn't care about books or history, ancient Greeks or Romans or any of that stuff. He doesn't care about the Renaissance. The average man wants beer and pizza. He wants social media on his phone and TV. That's it. He's just a talking ape. Plant man Prometheus. We are more than that. We are created in the image of God. Silicone man, 
You can't prove that. All of the biology teachers and all the high schools and colleges, they say that man is just a talking ape, plant man Prometheus. That is because they get fired if they mention intelligent design. Silicon man. Freedom is expensive. It leads to chaos. Look at all the wars between the countries. The only hope for peace is a globalist society where most of the people are subliterate laborers. Plant man Prometheus. Well, could we at least have a health aristocracy so that organic vegan food is available? Could we at least be allowed to have some books to read about history, philosophy, religion, and true science? Okay, so that's the end of that debate. Okay, now just a few last words here on education, and we're just about finished here. Conventional school makes the subject of, of, of teaching mandatory. The student has no choice. And typically, it's just memorizing disconnected minutia, and almost all of it is forgotten. And it very much reminds me of the movie Cool Hand Luke, where Luke was Paul Newman, and they forced him to dig. A, it was a punishment for trying to escape, but still, they forced him to dig uh, a ditch here. And as soon as he finished digging the ditch, they made him put the dirt back in, then dig it out again and put it back in. And that's very much like what regular school is, just memorizing stuff that's pointless and you forget it all. Whereas the modern intranet and a YouTube channel like Chef AJ's, like the School of Athens, anybody who's here to learn is here because they want to be. As students, they've chosen the material and they get a wide variety of experts. They can hear a wide variety of opinions. And... This is truly seeking knowledge, knowledge and it reminds me of the Renaissance and that the different speakers are all trying to make the best presentation to provide the best information. And this competition is like the Renaissance painters trying to make the best fresco, the best painting. Um, and it leads to better and better uh, presentations and learning and knowledge. That's a wonderful thing. And now I show you one thing and what I'm kind of getting in here. You know, even though Martin Luther was a crazy guy and I disagree with him on some things, he also did do some good things. And some people say he killed the Renaissance, he ruined the Renaissance. Nietzsche said that. And I think that was sad. And I do like what Pope Julius did to get Michelangelo, Raphael and others to build the beautiful buildings and paintings around the Renaissance. But let's just go with a few good things from Martin Luther. Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms, when he had to speak in front of Charles V, he was asked to renounce his previous books and speeches. And here's what he said. A simple layman with scripture is superior to the Pope and his counsels without scripture. So that's an important line. A simple layman with scripture is superior to the Pope and his counsels without scripture. If I am shown my error, then I will be the first to throw my books into the fire. I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. Amen. Martin Luther. Okay, and that is immediately relevant to the current situation of all of us. A high school dropout who learns nutrition and toxicology can save far more people from chronic disease than a conventionally trained physician who doesn't know nutrition and toxicology, which is most of them. So if you study nutrition and toxicology, you will learn all these sort of languages of health and nutrition. You'll learn the language of carbohydrates, fats, protein, and all these other things. And you can really help people when you know about that. So this uh, painting right here, you see the little flame above, which symbolizes being able to speak in tongues of Pentecost. And here's a Pentecost, another painting, this one by Jean Ristow, 50 Days After Easter. The flame signifies the ability to speak in foreign tongues. The new languages you have learned 
Mary's in the center column because she knows what this is all about. The others are surprised. And so I say to you, go forth and teach others in the name of the starch, the fruit, and the vegetable. Teach them to observe all things I have shared with you. And behold, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 to 20. Okay, the end. You want to take it off screen share for a minute? Okay, yeah. Uh, let me see if I know how to do that. I can do it for you. No worries. I can do that. Uh, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned Greg Dean, and he was my comedy teacher when I lived in L.A. Yeah, I, I thought that was that that idea of the anatomy of a joke was great. And you also mentioned at the very beginning appeal, and that's been kind of controversial. Some of the plant based doctors don't think it's so dangerous. Oh, well, they have. I don't think they've studied it in as much detail. I, I went through the, the 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 pub chem sheets on it. I mean, methyl cyanide, that's pretty dangerous putting trans fats on the outer surface of a plant, that's not a healthy thing. It also is hexane, that's a neurotoxin, um, lead, neurotoxin, uh, toluene, neurotoxin. You know, I'm pretty interested in good brain health. Uh, and you take this, and I, I'm actually very sad about it because it used to be that, you know, you could sit there as a low fat vegan and be skinny and healthy and not have all these health problems. You, you had found the path to escape. But if the if the fruits are ruined, what's left is the starches. So you can still eat starches, but you know that's a little bit a little bit monotonous. Only eat starches. Well, who knows? Maybe they'll put it on them too. You know, the 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 worst part is is that we had no say in this. We can't. You know, it's just we don't have we we can't even like fight against it. It seems. Yeah, it's kind of scary. It's not very transparent because I went to all the stores and I looked at the produce, and most things are not labeled. It's on the avocados, the stickers. And then you go talk to the produce guy, you talk to customer service, and they don't know anything. So it's kind of like, how does one choose wisely? You know, it's kind of scary. You know, you had talked about AFib, and it's so funny because I know people, three people who are slender, never been overweight, and follow a perfect plant-based diet, and they all have atrial fibrillation. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know for sure how to explain that. Um, there's different things that could be going on. Um, you know, I'm not a cardiologist or anything, but uh, I would simply say to myself, you know, it's kind of like McDougal joke one time. Somebody said they had earwax. He'd tell them to go low fat vegan just so because you're going to thin the blood, you're going to improve immune function. And hopefully that'll be enough. And then what I would do is I would look at a list of everything that increases AFib risk and I would avoid all those things and hope for the best. That, that's actually, I think, the smart way to approach diet. And I kind of joke. It's like the movie Colors with uh, Robert Duvall and Sean Penn. There were two cops and they were, and they joked about a joke about the bulls. Okay. There's two bulls sitting on top of a, a hill and they look down into the valley and there's a bunch of cows and the young, and the young bull says, Hey, Hey, let's run down there and screw with one of those cows. And the old, the old bull says, let's walk down there and screw with all of them. And so I'm kind of joking, but the point of it is if you optimize your overall health, you usually fix a whole bunch of problems along the way and everything improves versus if you try to just this is only, you know, AFib, it only is treated with this medication and this ablation procedure. That 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 overall approach, it works better. I've been around medicine a long time and I've seen that to be true. Even though when you first start to talk that way, people look at you like you're crazy or you're stupid or you're being weird because they don't get it. They're not used to thinking that way. And it takes time to explain that versus if you just say, take this pill, they're like, okay, thank you. Great. Well, thank you, Dr. Rogers. Yeah, you know, the talk today, I don't know if it was a little crazy, but it was a whole variety of things. I hope it was interesting.
Well, we'll let you know by by the comments. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That, yeah, I, it was a unique time. I don't intend to have another one like this, but I, I got all into the stuff and I thought it was fun. Well, great. Well, thank you. And thanks to all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back tomorrow for Plant-Based Classics with Lauren Burnick. She'll be making marinated portobello fajitas with a pecan chipotle sauce. Take care, everyone.